Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. The tingler is loose in this podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. My name is Zach Eastman. Many great sights await inside this picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Choose carefully, though, for your very seat may provide a tingling sensation near the end of the picture, should you choose to take that particular seat. No, it's not our doing. Our subject tonight can take full creative credit for the Ballyhoo's latest installation of Percepto, the new theater-going experience that will shock and delight you all in one breath. But it can only accompany one picture made by one man with a crazy enough dream to make the very silver scream come alive before RPX was even an abbreviation. He was known as the god of gimmicks, the earl of deferral, and the king of Ballyhoo. Hey, wait a minute, that's my job. Well, I must concede that if anyone deserves that title, it would be none other than William Castle. And tonight you will be treated to one of his many masterpieces as we go deep into a dive on the 1959 shock spectacular, The Tingler. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you 
will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the Tingler? review our progress so far. What do we know about the Tingler? What do we think we know and what have we got to find out? First, we know that it exists. And if Rinkin rays can't penetrate it, then we know it's solid. We know that fear alone energizes it, gives it strength. And that's about all we know. Except that the Tingler exists in every human being and that it's extremely powerful. Now, what do we think we know? Well, First, that fear causes the tingler to spread along the spinal column. And probably with those arm-like things between the vertebra, forces it to become arched and rigid. And you believe that screaming or, or perhaps any sound the human in fear can make de-energizes it, paralyzes it? Well, at least screaming seems to stop the tingler from bending the spinal column. Screaming may even dissolve it, or if it's a living organism, kill it. And these are things we have to find out. Mm. What do you think it's made of, Warren? I don't know but I'd guess sinews of some very powerful material. You said living organism. Could the tingler be actually alive? A separate and living thing inside our bodies? Why not? You know, of course, that after what we call death, a great many things continue to live in the human body. Fingernails, for instance, continue to grow, so does hair, and the formation of calcium in the bones continues. Well, life is not merely a matter of breathing and a beating heart. We've come a long way, Dave. And we got a long way to go. Perhaps, and perhaps not.
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the dock of the day. Yes, in 1959, Castle continued his run of hit horror films with The Tingler and further innovated his realm of promotional stunts and in-theater gimmicks that would be the stuff of legend. But how did Castle and his gimmicks work? And how were these stunts and the films that accompanied them influential to the current film landscape that we see to this very day? Well, we need help to sort it all out. Uh, with us, though, is the perfect man for the job. Uh, he is a guest with a penchant for the ins and outs of cinema, highbrow and lowbrow. He is a former comics writer and a podcast contributor whose glowing reviews on Talking Pictures TV entice any viewer to give a new film a shot. And today, he will lend us his many thoughts about where fear truly comes from. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Steve Noble. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Zach. Um, uh, uh, wow, I, I, that is the beyond my wildest, honestly. Uh, but please call me shameful. <laughs> shameful, yes. So this is for the audience. Uh, you will be able to find. We'll, we'll tell him. We'll we'll give you his Twitter handle up front. It's at shameful Steve. Oh, Steve. Uh, Steve Ailes Noble. <laughs> Steve Sales, not Ailes. That would be appropriate. Steve, Steve Sales. Steve Sales Noble. But your your name is Shameful Steve. But shameful I don't think Steve. I don't think there should be a shame in your heart sir in your head or heart you've got quite a a, a tactful approach of handling your reviews on talking pictures tv the latest one uh for erwin allen's the lost world and i which first of all i'm always torn with the lost world because we've got three different ones we've got the 1926 one that's got the very nice innovation we've obviously got steven spielberg's lost world which only features a small portion of richard attenborough which really frustrates me um (laughs) But um, because I want to know that things were spared no expense. That's what I want out of life. Um, But we also have this Irwin Allen version, which is the Irwin Allen canon. I mean, I got familiar with it mainly through Mystery Science Theater 3000 and then watched the films on their own. And it's quite a treat to kind of watch that. And you sell it very well. I need you to do me a favor, though. Because we've sure. only had one other Talking Pictures TV contributor on this show, and it was Kev, um, a.k.a. Yeah. the uh, Kev the Great, or as he's known as Richard Johnson's favorite podcster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, I'll never let that joke die. But um, some people in the States might not know what Talking Pictures TV is. I'm wondering if you could explain that for the folks at home listening on, in the stateside. Yeah, I, um, I guess the, the the nearest analogy you had was possibly the the original Turner Classic movies mm. when they used to put together all those um, 30s, 40s, and 50s movies. And I know it's kind of moved away from that now. Um, Talking Pictures TV is a uh, as a TV station owned by a father and daughter couple, Noel and Sarah. Uh, Noel bought thousands of cinematic prints during his years working in the film industry, and um, as an asset, he turned them into a TV station. Um, so this is on satellite and uh, free-to-air TV in the UK, and and it can be anything. Uh, things that you, you thought you, things that you'd heard of but never didn't think really existed, like Old Mother Riley versus the Vampire. Uh, <laughs> they show, I mean, they show that all the time, um, right up to uh, the, the a fair few of the Hammer Cannon. You know, it tends to be the, the slightly lesser known ones. Anything I think they could get for a, on a, on a reasonable budget to broadcast, right? Um, and it, and it's it's. Quite amazing. Um, it stretches for. I mean, I'm kind of they're showing the outer limits, but um, they they showed. Um, uh, actually, I keep thinking they should show the Boris Karloff thriller, which has never come to the UK. But it's, it's that sort of ilk of uh, early TV. Yeah, that's um, what they then, would get. Yeah, 
Yeah, and then and then Caroline Monroe, the fabulous Caroline Monroe, runs a cinema club on a Friday night with two or three horror films, and that can be anything from <laughs> Countess Dracula um, through to uh, um, uh, I don't know, some oh um, X Man with the X Ray Eyes, and, and, and some classics like that, and also something you've never heard of. Um, I just did Monster that Challenged the World, mm. um, which I'd only ever seen stills of, and just turned up on I, Talking Pictures TV. I've still never um, seen it's. I've still never education. I've still never sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I've still never seen no. that or half of the films that have because I listened to it and I put them in my mental in my mental storage bank because I know that if I ever reach the ability to retire comfortably, my my retirement time is going to be dedicated to either like helping out with grandchildren, taking care of my wife, or like to just sit down and watch all these movies that I missed over time. And then on my deathbed, <laughs> finally get to the last one and just be like, it's been a good life. <laughs> I, I, I refuse to die in the middle of a film. And like the, the, the list that you have will keep me alive for the next 500 years because it's, it's, it ranges the gamut too. That some of them are like, one of the recent ones was like a sports drama with Gene Hackman. That's not really about sports, like downhill, uh, uh, downhill, downhill racer. Downhill racer. Yeah, I yeah. never heard of that before. I was shocked. <laughs> like Gene Hackman for me is French Connection and Young Frankenstein. That's about well, Royal Tenenbaums as well. But there, but there's like this, there's this niche that you guys are able to dig into and claw into. You and also our, our mutual friend Tracy, um, who yeah. I know through Film Club. And she, and so it's a it's a great resource, and I feel like it's a show that an American audience can listen to, and just easily access the films their own way, so that they can participate in what's going on on that show because we don't have access to it out here. But like, it's still one of those lovely little handy guys. It's like a TV guide, which I really yeah. love. Like, I mean, like we don't have TV guide anymore because we live in an on demand world. And yet you guys are providing this audible service for it in a way that I'm sure TCM does to some extent. I, I'm not, I must confess, I love Golden Age Hollywood, but I'm not as into the TCM crowd as other people. <laughs> like, well, I think, I think again, I, I, we, we kind of had, we used to get black and white movies uh, in the UK on a Saturday afternoon on BBC Two. You know, this was our second national channel between one and five. You just got old black and white movies. And that kind of went away and it was nothing for a while. And then Talking Pictures came out. I mean, it, it gets shown in old people's homes because they, they, they see George Formby, they see Gracie Fields, all these old names they, they can yeah, respond to. And then later on in the day, they start showing these slightly culty, slightly odd around the edges, uh, The Mind of Mr. Soames, or um, just these slightly strange B-movies that, again, you may have seen the adverts for. But uh, uh, can we do a quick exchange of experiences here? Yes, we can. You were talking about TV guy. I remember seeing TV. I, I had American Cousins. And I went to visit them on Grand Island uh, when I was 14. And he had this thing called TV Guide. Mm -hmm. And you had so many channels, and we had four. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So this is this is the way it's played out over time over here. And my, my, my father and my mother have a better experience with where you guys would have matched up. Because from what I understand, it's it was CBS, NBC, ABC, um, and then you would have like your satellite, like, like remote stations that are a local station. Um, and then cable came around and then we just burst through the seams, but TV guide, it was still like the little pamphlet, like, like, or the little booklet size before it started kind of blowing up into whatever it's become now. And I would dig through it to find films. 
Um, I, I remember trying to find late radio land murders, um, on TV at one point and sifting yeah. through the TV guide for that because I didn't, I couldn't find it at the library yet. And like most of my experience through there was combing through TCM and AMC before AMC became the Mad Men network or the Breaking Bad network. So I would sift through it for a long time. And our newspaper had a whole page dedicated to the TV stations for the week. Um, or the day. So it was like broken down by hour. And I would circle the ones that I wanted to watch. It was the same uh, outlay that would also have all the movie adverts and posters. And I would cut them out and like frame them on my wall. I put a lot of pictures of the South Park movie on my wall <laughs> when I was younger because I wasn't allowed to see it. So I was just like, well, this is the closest I'll get. Um, and when, and when Lord of the Rings came out, I like cut out all those adverts for like nominated for 11 Academy Awards. I'm like, yes, that's right. It is. Um, (laughs) but we aren't here, we aren't here to talk about anything classy or in the Oscar realm. We're here to talk about a film that oddly enough would work very well on talking pictures, TV, the tingler. Now you, I gave you, since you're a new guest, I gave you like, just give me five films that you want to watch. And you put this on your list. And of course it stuck out because it's the tingler. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and you kind of already explained where your like background with golden age Hollywood would have been with like those films coming out on early TV. But what's your experience with William Castle? How did you get to know the Lord of all gimmicks? And it was, I thought you, you can ask me this question. And I thought, why, why was I so fascinated? Cause, um, the weird thing about Castle was in the UK, he was kind of not known. Um, we, we we never got the gimmicks. If we got the films, they would have been the second half of the double bill. Um, and I was trying to trying to pin it down because I've always been fascinated with him since the age of 14. And I realized um, I read a feature. Uh, um, Marvel Comics did mm. a series of black and white magazines in the 1970s, mid 70s, 76. And they did one called Monsters of the Movies. And it was a famous Monsters ripoff. It was their version, Monsters of the Movies. And I, and I found the edition the other day. It's got a beautiful cover. It's got a Boris Vallejo painting of the mummy. And it's fantastic, stunning. I've never seen the painting anywhere. It looks great. And on the front cover, it says William Castle. Uh, yeah, and I think it might have said Master of Value on that. And I realized it was an article in there that talked about William Castle and the gimmicks. Now, this is 1976. Um, and that, that we'd never seen him. I was completely fascinated. I don't know about you. You're probably the same. Yeah. There's first half dozen magazines you have. You read them cover to cover over and over and over again. Yeah. So I, I, I knew the contents of this thing. Um, and I realized I'd seen one. I'd seen Homicidal because Homicidal was shown late night in the UK. Again, I don't know if this was. I used to love horror films because I was not allowed to watch them. Mm-hmm. If my parents had said, you can watch horror movies. Oh, I wasn't worried about it, but I wasn't allowed to watch them. So if I could stay up late, find an excuse to stay up late. And um, I live in the Midlands and they show a horror movie uh, on a Friday night at 11 p.m. Um, and I saw the mummy, the, the hammer mummy that way. Um, and homicidal was in that realm. Of course, I didn't really get what a lot of it was about. But that would have been my first William Castle experience seeing it, which is a couple of years before I bought this magazine article that kind of put it into context. But the Tingler was the one I wanted to see. Yeah, I, I so that's interesting, and I'm I'm glad you kind of broke the dam open on that before I could ask it because it 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 was an obvious question I was going to ask, which was how did that work in the UK? Because 
it's only seems to be an American centric experience with the gimmicks, but homicidal <laughs> homicidal is an interesting one to start off with. Um, <laughs> I, I still For 14 year old boy. It certainly is. <laughs> oh yeah. And I still haven't seen straight jacket or, um, uh, the, um, it's the one where, um, I'm trying to remember, uh, Dr. Par, it's the one where you choose. It's the one where you Sardonicus. choose. Sardonicus. Sardonicus. Yeah, Sardonicus, yes. where he lives or dies. But I know. Well, the, Mr. Sardonicus, I, yeah. Yeah, I know the story of it, though, because it's the idea Ooh. of lives or dies. And actually, one of the documentaries that I was sitting down to watch to kind of fam- refamiliarize myself with Castle, it's not Spine Tingler, the really good one that Jeffrey Schwartz did. Um, that one is not available to stream for some reason. I've never seen it. No. It's, it's really good. I saw it when I was in film school because I. Uh, found a copy of the DVD at the library. and um, But this one, though, uh, directly alluded it to an episode of Futurama where they go to see uh, All My Circuits, the movie, and they ask if you want Calculon to speed to the speed to the uh, speed to the action in his hover Ferrari, press one. If you want him to perform <laughs> tedious paperwork, press two. Fry presses one, and the guy goes, uh, "You have selected two. No, I didn't. I'm almost <laughs> positive you did." Because <laughs> that's the weird thing about this whole decision thing, which makes economic sense, is that he banked on the idea that everybody would want to see Sardonicus die, <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm looking, by the way, at this Mar- monsters of the movies. This is incredible. This is the yeah. stuff I want to find at the comic shop. I, I, this is. I wonder if my friend, um, our our previous guest Ryan, is a huge Marvel fan. I wonder if he's got some of these stashed away. This one here, yeah, it's actually he says the father of Rosemary's Baby, and there's also one for Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein in there too. That is, oh yeah, yeah, brilliant feature on it because they were there at, at test screenings of it. They talk oh. about the deleted scenes before, uh, ten years, fifteen years before you could see them. Ooh, that is, I uh. It says it's only eight ninety nine on hip hipcomic.com. <laughs> That's a great name. Hipcomic.com. eBay's got it for $169 with a, a CGC rating of 9.6. Yikes. <laughs> that, that's where I'm that's where I'm selling my cup. There you go. Yeah, that's not uh that's that's not uh, that's not in my budget whatsoever. But but then again, I mean, we are talking about a guy who literally knew how to cut a budget around. I mean, he worked for one of the king of budget cutters, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, but my, my castle experience was house on haunted Hill. That's where it started. Um, over time, I learned more about castle, especially in film school and through my uh, devotion to John Waters films at the time, because when you see pink flamingos for the first time, it changes you, it changes you in all the correct ways. <laughs> um, but there's a story and I'll lay in a clip because it, somebody put it on YouTube. So I think I'm good to splice this clip in. Uh, but there's a clip that I'm going to present here of John Waters describing the Tingler for us. And normally we don't do this, but I do think that it is a good clip to splice in. Uh, his next movie was The Tingler, and that's my personal favorite. Um, in that one, the Tingler is an organism that grows in your body and gets larger and larger when you're frightened, and the only way you can kill it is to scream. Well, <laughs> naturally, there's a mute in the film, and uh, <laughs> the mute is in the theater, and the Tingler gets loose, and you hear the announcer in the movie say, ladies and gentlemen, the Tingler is loose in the theater. Scream, scream for your life, and everybody starts screaming, and then perception these little electric buzzers went off under the seat and gave you a little electric shock. It was so good. 
You know, it, when it finally came to the theater in my neighborhood, they only bothered to wire about two or three of the seats. So I'd go early and look under every seat till I found the Percepto buzzer and then just sit there and get my ass buzzed all day long. <laughs> Two, four, six, eight, and ten o'clock show. And that's when I realized that there could be such a thing as art in the cinema. If you've just heard that clip, we talk about John Waters basically getting seeking an ass buzzing openly and willingly. <laughs> <laughs> which makes perfect fucking sense. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me you didn't prepare that line. <laughs> yep, I didn't prepare it. Nope, it was all there. It was all. It was just all in the noggin. I remember that special. It it was very. It was a very influential special, and he is a very influential filmmaker in terms of just presentation and just going for broke and the the transgressive nature of his films. He's he's he remains one of those active idols of mine as does William Castle to a lot of extent because this is a guy who I would say pushed a lot more boundaries than even Hitchcock did in a certain degree in fact without William Castle we wouldn't have Psycho so I would yeah. I would definitely say that William Castle has a lot a much more gritty edge to him but We've got to talk about his life because holy fucking shit, <laughs> this man. <laughs> there, so I try to disclose as much of the sources as I can on Ballyhoo for like what, like what I can like trace back, and a lot of this is coming from William Castle's own memoir. Uh, Step up, I'm gonna scare you. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, Steve and I talked about this in the pre-show chatter. We're pretty sure that 75% of his stories are bullshit, but. <laughs> I think that it's still worth telling the legend, as uh, as as Steve said, and as our previous guest Laura has said. So William Castle is born William Schloss Jr. Schloss, by the way, apparently translates to castle in German. Um, Schloss is a, an inventive boy as a young man. In the in the memoir, he talks about like being cast as the Spider Boy, so he was already had a penchant for the creepy. Um, now here comes the sad part, though. When he's nine, his mother dies of pneumonia, and then his father follows a year later from a heart condition, making him an orphan by age eleven. And he said this in his memoir. I tried to cry at the funeral, but the tears wouldn't come. My mother was still alive. They were burying someone else, not my mother. A year later, my father died, a coronary. At the funeral, again, I couldn't cry. I wanted to, but I couldn't. I felt nothing. It wasn't really happening. So it's a strange start to the man who would actively say to you, like, if you get scared in my theater, I'll give you $1,000. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you would expect him to go into Ingmar Bergman territory with a, tr with a backstory like this. Like This is like nearing Dickensian for me. <laughs> um, but, but also, but also, sorry, just to interrupt you there. No, no, go ahead. Um, the person in the coffin isn't dead. How many times does that happen in William Castle movies? Oh my God! Do you think? <laughs> I just have this sad picture in my head of him going to the cemetery each year, going like they're going to pop out this time. I know they are. Like that's <laughs> a dark joke. I understand, but it seems like this guy also had. This is what I appreciate about Castle and his memoir. He actively does not care what you think about his language. Like, he actively does not care. He is very, very blunt and very forward mm -hmm. about himself and his life. 
Um, he, he even said, and this is why I think he should have gone into dramatic territory given this background, which is frustrated and filled with resentment. I built a defensive covering, sealing it with a false bravado, allowing no one near me. He would have loved Hot Topic. He would have loved Hot Topic growing up as, as a kid. Um, yeah. And uh, now this is where we get into the fun stuff. He was starting to attract attention to himself in order to gain some form of like attention and just like some form of acceptance. It seems like, because these stories in the, um, in the, in the memoir scared me a little bit, Steve, he would knowingly attract attention to himself by performing stunts, like stripping down to the waist and swimming in the Hudson river, uh, where pain gripped his stomach and he began to sink under the icy water until he was revived by artificial respiration. Then <laughs> he decided, I'm going to jump off the platform of a train <laughs> and let the yeah. incoming train deal with it. The train stopped in time, but he said a line that spoke to my heart again and again. I heard the carnival barkers call step right up the applause, the attention, this it's a showman's it, the showman's legend. Like this, this, this boy was Born to ballyhoo, as it were. Hey, that's, yes. that's yeah. Which, which, by the way, you brought the king of ballyhoo to ballyhoo. Congratulations, Steve. You've done well, the, thank you. you've thank done you. the one thing that in seventy plus episodes nobody's bothered to do. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think that'd be the first one. Um, <laughs> now. Here's where we have a little connection from our very first episode. At 13, he sees a roadshow performance of Dracula with Bella Lugosi. <laughs> he stole money from his sister's purse to attend the show every night it was in town for two weeks. After the performance, he went up to Lugosi backstage and Lugosi sat, it down, sat him down and chatted with him. Two years later, he gets a call from a producer of the roadshow Dracula who offered young Schloss the job as assist assistant stage manager based on Lugosi's recommendation. Do you know <laughs> that is amazing. That's Bella talking. Yo, no, go ahead. The other thing I love about that, Zach, the other thing I love about that is uh, this 13 year old kid goes up to the doorman um, at the show and says, uh, let's see Bella Lugosi, please. And the doorman <laughs> says, yeah, he says, he's a friend of mine. And the doorman apparently says, Oh, okay. In you go. <laughs> well, the doorman's probably just like, oh, uh, you're the heroin guy. I got gotcha. you. All right. Come on in, kid. Hello, Jerry. You've got my medicine? Oh, oh, hello, kid. How are you? <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure, you can talk. Come on in. Come on in. I'm sorry. No drugs are being handled here, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've forgotten you did the impressions as well. Yeah, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. Yeah, no, this will be fun. I, I can't do Cat. You know, it's funny. Castle doesn't get an imitation. Castle, Castle's earned his own voice. <laughs> like he's earned a basic. I, I, voice. I, I tell you, but sidestep a second. There's the the actors. Now, who, who does he say? He says in his autobiography, somebody he gets mixed up with somebody, um, and I can't think of who it is. There's, there's one of the actors, the William Holden. William Holden. He says, yes. "Oh, William Holden." Like we're always getting. Do you know he's a spitfall for me? John Mahoney, the dad in, in Frasier. Oh, really? Dad and Frasier. That is William Castle. The two the two guys are so similar. Yeah, they are. That is... <laughs> <laughs> Some tossed salad right here in the Ballyhoo. This is, exactly. This is... I, well, no, I, I mean, you know, it's funny, actually. 
I don't think we've ever talked about how Frazier inspi- was inspired by Jack Benny to certain extents, but now that it's open, let's talk about that. No, we won't go Ooh. down that rabbit hole, but yes, no, <laughs> J- Jack Benny really influenced uh, Kelsey Grammer as a comedian. So I'm under the impression that a lot of that timing is, is because Kelsey is going off of Jack, but you're right. Mahoney uh, does have that castle streak in him. Yeah. <laughs> I need to go back to Frazier now. Oh, you know, it's, well, it's funny because I still got to finish Red Dwarf because Smokey and Kev were pushing me to watch Red Dwarf and I stopped at the beginning of season three because I had stuff going on in my life. But I'm like, no. So, 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 so do you think that you said earlier that you're not going to die in the middle of a movie? Mm. If you keep movies just going, yeah. you could live forever. I could. That is true. You could. No more, t- no more TV. I can't do TV. It's got to be only films. So Okay. It's, okay. Well, 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 hold on. I'll make an exception for Red Dwarf, Star Trek, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Simpsons, Seinfeld. I'll go back to those. But <laughs> yeah, um, And you're allowed to watch on repeat. So. Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, oh. Secret of Immortality revealed today yeah, on yeah, this podcast. T- today. If you watch movies every day, you'll never yeah, die. All the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Uh, Wilford Brimley, do you have anything to add to that? You'll never get old and you'll never die. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's of diabetes. That shit's incurable. <laughs> I. Yeah, we'll talk about... Don Amici, not Wilford Brimley, he wasn't Golden Age Hollywood, but we'll talk about Don Amici at some point because I want to go from the story of Alexander Graham Bell to breakdancing with alien powers. <laughs> like that's that's a, that's a career right there. That's a fucking career. Um, <laughs> but he um, he so he started doing stage management work, but he did gimmicks to sell Dracula, and I loved this. It's it's not really so much funny as it is cute. He uh, he involved a closed black coffin outside the theater and an ori and. Uh, oriental incense to get audiences in the mood and then another had dracula vanishing on stage in a cloud of smoke then suddenly to reappear in the audience which i love that idea i fucking love that idea that is incredible and uh he starts he starts his career in stage management off of this job the depression does hit him hard though and he has to go around the borscht belt looking for um which is more like the jewish theater circuit looking around for uh for for jobs but enter the late 30s castle finagles his way into the stony creek theater in connecticut and he leases this from one orson wells <laughs> this this guy has fucking balls <laughs> he convinced orson wells to lease this theater for 10 weeks for $5,000. And the only, what, there's a couple of reasons I believe it that I told you off mic, Steve. One yeah. of them will be hands down that Orson Welles wanted $5,000. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And this is pre this is pre really needing the money days for Wells. For five thousand dollars, he's like, right on, I've got pocket change. <laughs> like that's this'll be great in LA when I'm gonna ruin Car KO technically. <laughs> um now he gets he gets the contact, by the way, from Everett Sloan, and like that's when he calls up Orson. He's like, What the hell do you want? <laughs> like the the basic equivalent of sure go away leave me alone i'm going to make the greatest film of all time (laughs) if you don't mind so he starts he starts a relationship with that theater by leasing it and then we get the involvement of ellen schwanica who was a german-born actress had acted in german era films during the nazi regime 
she the 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 story like feels weird because it's basically has Ellen overhearing the conversation about leasing the theater and then slightly seducing him. <laughs> and he comes up with a play for her because I found this interesting. Apparently Alfred Lunt had told him no alien can play in Summerstock. It's an equity rule. So unless it was native to their language and their country, a foreign actor could not act in Summerstock, which I was like, I was shocked. I just assumed like there was no real boundary for that. I think it's mainly because this is theater because the fil- film doesn't care. They'll train you how to speak English in five minutes if you really want it. Like that's how John Dujardine was in Wolf of Wall Street, I guess. But yeah. th- there, but so he cre- conceives a play called Das ist nicht für Kinder, not for children. Um, and if I mispronounce that, apologies to the German listening audience, because I did find out that you guys are listening in Germany. Um, and uh, he, retra- he retranslated it to German for Ellen to perform. As the play is going on and sinking and tanking, <laughs> Ellen Schwanica turns up with an invitation from the Nazi regime to attend this big festival for all of Germany's stars. And Ellen breaks into this soliloquy of sadness where she's just flat out going like, I don't want to go back there. I don't like the regime there. I don't like the Nazis and enter William Castle, the hero where he goes, take a letter. (laughs) This, And this is the telegram that he writes to Hitler. According to him, I'm not going to, Facts are irrelevant here today, guys. We're dealing with Bill Castle. Dear Mr. Hitler. (laughs) Mr. Hitler. (laughs) If he had known what was going on, I don't think he would have used the moniker Mr. (laughs) Dear asshole. (laughs) Um, Ellen Schwanica turns down your invitation. She has positively said no. She wants nothing to do with you or your politics. She will not return to Germany as long as you remain in power. Signed, William Castle, producer-director, Stony Creek Theater, Connecticut. P.S. She works for me now. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's a mic drop. That's a, that's a mic drop. It, that's a telegram slam is what we call that instead. A telegram slam. Because that is nuts. And then he played this up to the press. And four New York papers published this headline, The Girl Who Said No to Hitler, which sounds exactly like a film that I would see on MST3K at some point. <laughs> and so he he promoted the hell out of this thing. And even, and I, I questioned this a little bit in terms of a promotional gimmick, painted swastikas on the side of the theater to seem like it was vandalized and be like, it's your patriotic duty to see this movie. <laughs> But, but it worked. It, it worked. completely worked. So he says. It, it sold out. The theater runs sold out. It not only worked to the advantage of his theatrical career, it worked to his benefit for Hollywood because somebody from Columbia named Sam Mark said, well, say, we need gumption over at Columbia. We're dealing with the- <laughs> Columbia Pictures. This is the first time we've done a Columbia film, Steve, so you also brought something else new to Whoa. the show. We've okay. not done Columbia, and we don't – the history of Columbia is so – Interesting because it's technically a poverty row studio, but it has several best picture wins under its belt while still being considered a poverty row studio. And Harry Cohn is one of the most notorious pieces of shit that ever lived on this planet. And so, so William Castle must have been something to have stood up and to be friends yes, with Harry Cohn. That's what 
blew my fucking mind <laughs> because <laughs> I thought nobody liked this guy with the exception of possibly Frank Capra because it seemed like Capra and him had a pretty decent working relationship except when things kind of fell apart by the end of it before he went off to serve in World War II. But it seemed like for the most part they kind of got on cordially. But every other story you hear about Khan is about him just spewing out expletives and just being the most abusive harassment human harassment laden human being imaginable. He got along with them. And in mm-hmm. fact he told he he basically uh, told like when Castle was telling him, "Well, I think I have talent. I think I'd work here." He went bullshit. I'll tell you whether or not you have talent. <laughs> and he proceeds to give him this crash course through film history or for filmmaking. And he began as a dialogue director. And this is where I had to double check William Castle's fact machine here because. In his book, in the back, he gives like a little filmography for himself. And the first one would have been Music in My Heart. But Hmm. he alludes to in the first, as his first job, as Penny Serenade, directed by George Stevens. Reporting that George Stevens, like, basically just grabbed the kid and said, here, do this. I need you. It's not that hard. Trust me. Um, and Penny Serenade, for people who don't know, it's a Cary Grant film. It's a one one of the few he was nominated for an Oscar for. Um, and he moves through the ranks. Um, he would go through various capacities. He would provide stories for films like North of the Klondike. He would be a director for several different noir films and mystery serials, including the Whistler films. He did four of the six Whistler films and one Boston Blackie and four entries in a series that I've never seen called Crime Doctor. And I want to watch Crime Doctor immediately. <laughs> I want to be Crime Doctor. Who would who, <laughs> I want to be the Crime Doctor. Would you, yeah, yeah, you we, well, look, podcasting has no future at all whatsoever. I'm sorry <laughs> to all of our friends out there, Smokey, Adam, Aaron, Chloe. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Podcasting is done. But being Crime Doctors. Crime Doctor. Not, not a medical examiner for the state. Not, not a forensic scientist no crime doctor <laughs> but also also does he solve crimes or does he perform them i th- and do we ever really know i think you should have the option here's what you do you go to crime doctor you cdu and you, yeah. oh, you, yes. you, 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 you study hard, and then at the end they ask you to pick a degree. One is mm. white, uh, white sheepskin, and the other one is black sheepskin. <laughs> and if you pick the black sheepskin one, guess where your career is headed? <laughs> plenty of, plenty yeah, of prison yeah. breaks. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. I didn't study all these years to be called Mister Doctor, right? <laughs> it's 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 Mister Crime Doctor. Thank you very much, Mister yes. Doctor. Crime doctor. Mr. Doctor. Dr. Crime Doctor. Dr. Crime Doctor, if you don't mind. (laughs) PhD. (laughs) Esquire. (laughs) How how can you expand the name further? (laughs) Mr. Dr. Crime Doctor. (laughs) Well, that you can. Well, well, unless he was Dr. Crime Doctor, comma, Crime Doctor. You know, that way you can explain the role as well as describing it. The, per- the person who paints those letters on his door is going to be fucking pissed. <laughs> well, especially if he gets fired the next day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, excuse <laughs> me. You you spelled this fucking wrong. What What do you want from me, buddy? <laughs> I'm only... No, 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 no. I'm sorry. 
But you said them there. Okay, who's the one guy that's never the victim? The one guy that's never the victim in all those films is the guy painting the letters. That's true. On the window. Now, now, he had a steady job. He had a steady job in Hollywood. He's forever painting letters. That is our great missing film noir. Ooh. The guy who paints the letters goes missing. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Suddenly, no detectives know who they are anymore. When the, when the chief cop's replaced, nobody knows who it's going to be. Oh, I like this. I like this. This would have been a good pop. This would have been, you know, we, we have Tucker and Dale versus Evil out in the world. This would be a great sideline. Yeah. This is something I wish Carl Reiner and Steve Martin had done. <laughs> that that would have been, because we're fans of uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Like, you've got to love oh, Dead oh, Men Don't Wear Plaid. Yes, completely. And that, yeah, yeah. That, so, so, Crime Doctor versus Signed or Painter. Ooh. You know, there, there is Dawn of Justice. That is your epic. Yes, Dawn of Justice. <laughs> I, that, that, yeah. And for anybody who's tired of the Dawn of Justice jokes, guess what? They're not going away. <laughs> I, I, I will, I will, I will call this episode Vincent V. Tingler, Dawn of Castle. Ooh. If y'all are not careful. <laughs> um, now, um, this is where though. He works for Columbia for a while, and in fact, he helms a lot of noirs, including one called uh, When Strangers Marry, which his old friend Orson Welles saw and said, like, look, this is a Poverty Row studio film, but God damn it, is it fucking magical? <laughs> and gave it this brilliant advert, and this is an early Mitchum film, too. Um, and he ended up being the associate producer for the lady from Shanghai. So his association with Wells never ended. Did did, did you believe the story? The story that he tells is that he wrote a screenplay, which became Lady from Shanghai. I don't believe that. And I wasn't quite sure whether I believed that. I don't don't believe that one, but also here's the thing. And I wanted to know if how, what your knowledge point might be on this. Cause I don't know if everybody knows. But they were, he quoted a different book than what Orson Welles quoted as the book that was the inspiration for this piece. And Orson wasn't look, according to Orson, Orson wasn't looking for this property for Rita. Uh, in fact, Harry Kahn convinced, wanted convinced Orson, going like, you've got to like give Rita this role. She's perfect for it. But the reason that Orson made it, according to Orson, is that he was in debt. $50,000 for the costumes needed for his performance of Around the World in 80 Days. And he said, I need the money. And he thought of who he knew in Hollywood who had $50,000. And he said, Harry Kahn, only he would have the courage to do it. <laughs> and and that's how that happened. Um, but according to Castle, no, he apparently wrote the script for this yeah. movie. I don't believe it. I don't. It would be shocking to me. About as shocking as Percepto. If we, oh, I was going to say, did you say shocking? Oh shoot! There we go. Yeah, I I, ins- uh, I installed a little World War II de-icer on my bottom here to <laughs> make sure that I felt every instance of this podcast. Man, you, you were shining daylight on magic here. Come on. Yeah, it, it, no, I mean, I'm I'm just hoping that by the end of our episode, that the projector doesn't break down and that we're suddenly finding ourselves with a tingler loosed in this Zoom room. <laughs> But, you know, stay tuned, guys. You never know what's going to happen here on the Ballyhoo. But he got tired of Columbia, and he got tired of basically being stuck in this rut, and he discovered the magic of independent horror films and these new forms of distribution, not too dissimilarly from how Roger Corman found access to these. And he put all of his money into a film. He mortgaged his house and made the film Macabre. And Macabre came with a gimmick 
and he needed a way to promote it, and he took out $1,000 life insurance policies from Lloyd's of London should the audience die of fright. So you were given an insurance policy at the door. (laughs) That is gutsy, to say the least. But it also, like, shows your clout and backup. And, like, right off the bat, we're dealing with something that translates directly to today and not necessarily... If you love the Human Centipede guys, God bless you. I just don't love that movie. But that movie was sold on the shock and terror and like 100% medically accurate and stuff like that. Like that kind of showmanship came into the Human Centipede world. Um, And this gimmick worked. Macabre made money. Now, there is a dispute about how Macabre came uh, about financially. And I... I don't know who to believe here because it sounds like everybody's producing lore out of this, but the writer of The Tingler and House on Haunted Hill and Macabre is Rob White. Uh, Rob White was a writer of short stories and novels and a lot of juvenile um, uh, juvenile novels, mystery novels that ended up becoming critically acclaimed and award-winning. Um, and he met Castle while they were working on a film called The Man from Annapolis, or not a TV show, not a film. Um, and he hired White because White knew Annapolis and could like blend authenticity to it. According to Rob White, they agreed to go 50-50 on Macabre, but Castle never put his portion in. <laughs> so according to Rob... All of Rob's money went into the movie, and it didn't go 50-50. It went 75-25, and guess who got the 75? <laughs> yeah, it, he called um, he called Castle a f- uh, full-on con artist, but clearly he was... <laughs> that wasn't the exact word he used. Well, no, just, yeah. I mean, I mean, going through that early experience, yeah, he kept on working with Castle. Do you get the impression that they would come up with the, the Castle would come up with a gimmick and go back to Rob White and say, "Come on, write me a, a script around this." Yeah, I, I have to imagine that that's part of it. But what's interesting though is is that the the formation of Percepto, according to the memoir, it seemed like it came after the idea for the movie came because Rob White explained that he. Like that somebody on House on Haunted Hill had shown him a worm, like a, a and a disgusting looking worm at that, and he was just entranced by this worm, and he went to went to Castle and just like, let's talk about where fear comes from, and that's like where he boils down this story idea, and additionally, Vincent Price's involvement is interesting in this too because this is the second film he does for Castle, the first one he did involves a story from the memoir that sees Castle noticing Vincent at a coffee shop, going up to Vincent and going like, and he apparently had met him once before. And he goes like, do you remember me, Mr. Price? He goes, why no, young man, I don't. Now, do you mind? I'm, I just lost out in a very important picture. I'm very depressed. And Castle goes like, well, mind if I join you? And like, ah, fine. And they sit down and he pitches him House, for, house on Haunted Hill. And I had to write this down because I, I this is typical Vincent Price, like just one of the reasons I love him. Um, I wrote it down. As Castle goes into the moments where he describes this ultimate battle of wits with the married couple, Vincent replied, her wins. Why you do, of course. She tries to throw you into a vat of boiling acid. And Price responded, how charming. <laughs> and he explained to him 
like what would happen at the end with the skeleton. And it convinced him enough that Price said, like, I think I'll have a slice of pie. <laughs> and in there, they signed the contract on the spot. Now, this is where it gets interesting to me. And I had to I had to get down to I had to pull this up through I got his memoir on Kindle. And I want to pull up the full story of him introducing the idea of the tingler to Vincent Price, because I have to imagine that Price must have been the most genial, laid-back human being on the planet, short of smoking weed, because he was willing to go along with Castle on pretty much any venture he pitched to him on the, within the two, and this story lovingly like just kills me every time. This is from chapter 20, Scream from your Scream for Your Life. What's a tingler look like? <laughs> the first line. Sort of like a lobster, but flat, and instead of claws, it has long, slimy feelers. That's what I think a tingler looks like. I was in art department of Columbia talking to an artist. After a success of Hoss on Haunted Hill, I was back at Columbia. Only this time I had my own independent production company and I was completely autonomous. The artist finished sketching. How's that? Perfect. People won't be eating lobster for five years. Then he cuts to Vinny. Vinny, you've got to play the doctor in it. You'll be perfect. Bill, I, I don't want to be typecast. I, 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 I really just want to hang on to my paintings, bro. <laughs> um, and Vincent puffs on his long slender cigar. Vinny, with the success of Haunted Hill, I think it'll open up a whole new career for you. Price hesitated. Well... Maybe. Tell me a little more about it. Then he goes into explaining the entirety of the Tingler, which we'll get to in a second, but he breaks down to the final scene of it, and Vinny just goes, do you think it'll work? <laughs> <laughs> you almost want to go to Vince Price and be like, dude, you saw the returns on this last film, and I know this because you got a hefty percentage of those profits. <laughs> you bought $200,000 paintings off of this, buddy. <laughs> you, th you don't think this won't work? <laughs> And Castle said, I know it will, but it wasn't enough. And this is where he comes up with the bright idea for what would become Percepto, which, by the way, Percepto, the name came from Donna Holloway, uh, who was a who was, who was working at Columbia from the memoir. It says Castle uh, Castle says this one night, the lamp beside my bed went out. As I was reading, getting a new bulb from the kitchen, I started to replace it. Shit, I yelled. I got a hell of a shock. Something's wrong with the wire. Suddenly, I had my gimmick for the tingler. I shook Ellen, uh, his wife at this point, um, uh, Ellen F uh, Falk, it looks like. Uh, I shook Ellen excitedly. What's it now, she mumbled. I'm going to buzz the asses of everyone in America by installing little motors under the seats of every theater in the country. When the tingler appears on screen, the projectionist will push a button. The audience will get a shock to their butts and think the tingler is loose in the theater. By now, Ellen was fully aw awake. You're stark raving mad, she said. <laughs> <laughs> that's a supportive wife right there <laughs> and a realistic one too just like bill calm the fuck down and go back to bed <laughs> you're high also also the fact he thinks a flat lobster is going to be the scariest monster in the world do you think he'd maybe taken a little bit of what vincent had taken in the in the film do you, do you think maybe, maybe a, a little you, bit of that i i think you know what's funny this is a 
point to bring up that I wanted to bring up. Do you remember the film Teenagers from Outer Space at all? Like if you're like it's a sci-fi film from the era and it did the same it's a low low budget film. And they did the same techniques that they do for them and other stuff where you'd superimpose footage of the bigger monster. In this it's an actual lobster. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lobster that they put in front of tiny sets. It is. <laughs> they have it at one point crawling across the screen, and when the tingler pops up in the movie theater across the projection screen, I kept thinking like teenagers from outer space. <laughs> the, the, um, the first movie I reviewed for talking pictures was the giant gila monster. So the giant gila monster gets shown on talking pictures a lot, lady. Yeah, all sort of hours of the day, and it's exactly that. It's the least threatening pet lizard you've ever seen. Yeah, but it's thirty feet high and badly superimposed. And who are who are you to tell me that it's that it's not real? Who are you to tell me that exactly. that's not a monster? That's that's the way you enjoy films like The Tingler and them and any giant monster movie from the fifties. Uh, I'm I'm I go by the phrase like, who are you to tell me that's not real? And then, and I, and I live in my world, and the in the negative Nancy's live in depression land or something like that. That's how Actually, that works. There, there is one bit, and I know we haven't really got into the plot yet. Yeah, there's one bit where you, in which the tingle is slightly believable, and it's when it's, it's calling him Vincent Price's arm. Yes, he can't get the damn thing off. Yes, He's trying to break his arm. Okay, which recent film echoed that? Prometheus, man. Mm. The same scene happens in Prometheus. <laughs> the little snaky guy looks all friendly, breaks his arm. Do you, same scene. Do you think Ridley Scott was a fan of Castle? It doesn't list. I was trying to look and see if like like Ridley Scott or anybody like that, any other filmmaker other than John Waters was influenced. Bob Semeckis is listed. But wow. I wonder if Ridley Scott was a William Castle fan somehow. I, and I... And, I don't think he would have went to Percepto, obviously, but <laughs> but I, I think Ridley Scott would consider himself far too highbrow. I don't think his screenwriters, however, have the same view. His screenwriters have seen it. I mean, I mean, the original Alien was based on it, the Terror from Space, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, uh, Damon I, 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 Damon Lindelof did Prometheus, I believe. Like so, like yes, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. he he's the one who's sneaking that in there. <laughs> <laughs> And I love that you said that Scott's too highbrow because my response is like, really? Then explain House of Gucci to me. Anyway. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I, I'm sure, is it worth carrying on avoiding? I like it. It's, it's amazing because Ridley Scott is director of uh, two of my favorite movies of all time. Obviously Aliens, obviously Blade Runner. Yeah. But d- does do everything. I mean, obviously with that major cinematic sense. I know, I know we're wildly off topic here. No, no, no. Um, go ahead. Yeah. He does that. He has that major cinematic that he applies to everything. But it's almost like he gets a script and goes, "Hey, let's really scot the hell out of this," you know, regardless of what it is. Yeah. So, um, so uh, I mean, I, I absolutely adore him for that. And also, I watch probably one in five of his films. I really enjoy. Well, he he would actually honestly like. What's funny is is that it, it wouldn't surprise me if he'd seen one of Castle's noirs because he seems to be a noir fan mm-hmm. if he's pulling that for Blade Runner. Like Blade well, Runner is, yeah. is flat out a noir film set in space. Oh, not space. Yeah. LA nine LA in twenty forty nine. But like I yeah, I'm not a Blade Runner fan, so I'm sorry if I'm getting You're not a Blade Runner fan? No, I'm let me take it back. I like Blade Runner, but I'm not a devotee. Like I'm not like I'm not an Uber fan. Fun fact, Steve, I didn't see the first Blade Runner until two thousand seventeen, and I saw it on a big screen with the final cut. So I saw the version that Ridley would want me to see. Um, and then we saw Blade Runner 20, 2049. And I walked out of 2049 going like, those are fun. 
You know, like both of these are fun movies. These are fun movies. I'm sorry, these are religions. These are. These are. I know. Uh, that, Part of my DNA. Tell you, Even the new one. The new one is great because it's so, anyway, I, I, way off topic. I, you, it so reflects the old one. I love it. I've, I'm now thinking that I would have wondered what the gimmick would have been if William Castle had done Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what would it have been? You'd, well, actually, it's easy. It's easy. Who in the audience is a replicant? Oh, oh, oh my God. <laughs> one of these people during the screening will turn out to be a replicant. You know what they do? You'd get a lot of horigami unicorns. And you put them in different seats. <laughs> but you don't know what it is. And if you're paying attention to the film correctly and you go back and you look at look at the people getting out of their seats, if they have an origami unicorn near them, guess what? They're a replicant. Oh, man, just a couple of people with red-tinted contact lenses in the audience. <laughs> just, in, just to catch the light, just right. You know? in, in the lobby, you can do the test that they give Sean Young. Oh, the Void Count test, of yeah, course. That would be, oh my, oh my God. We need to remake Blade Runner now. <laughs> no, not remake. William, Castle, William Castle's Blade Runner. Runner. This is genius. <laughs> you could do that CGI tech from uh, Rogue One with uh, Peter Cushing, which I don't necessarily condone. But if you're going to do it, do William Castle going like, hi, I'm William Castle. I'm here to introduce Blade Runner. Now, during the film, you may realize that some people are not who you expect. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Within that, though, oh, that's it. The replicant test in the door. Absolutely, it's it's a brilliant idea. But with that note of William Castle introducing things, we can jump right into the Tingler. Let's do it. We open up. I'm sorry, we've been headless. Yeah, this is great. We open up on Castle flat out telling you this is what's going to happen during the movie. <laughs> I am William Castle, the director of the motion picture you're about to see. I feel obligated to warn you that some of the sensations, some of the physical reactions which the actors on the screen will feel will also be experienced for the first time in motion picture history by certain members of this audience. I say certain members because well, some people are more sensitive to these mysterious electronic impulses than others. These uh, unfortunate, sensitive people will at times feel a strange, tingling sensation. Others will feel it less strongly. But don't be alarmed, you can protect yourself. At any time you are conscious of a tingling sensation, you may obtain immediate relief by screaming. Don't be embarrassed about opening your mouth and letting rip with all you've got, because the person in the seat right next to you will probably be screaming too. And remember this, a scream at the right time may save your life. Is that a detriment to you? <laughs> because wouldn't the fun be that they didn't know that was going to happen? But I think that's for legal reasons. <laughs> because I would imagine if he didn't do that introduction... And suddenly somebody felt a shock underneath their seat. Somebody's going to sue William Castle. So it adds to the showmanship, though, because he's just like, something's going to happen. We're not going to tell you what, but you're going to be needed to scream. And remember, a scream at the right time might save yours and somebody else's life. And then, much like Haunted Hill, we get three floating heads screaming, screaming yeah. their head off. 
before we're thrust into a noir film, <laughs> this but that was a, but, that, but that was a castle motif, wasn't it? I'm oh, sorry, yeah. That, that, yeah. Um, that was a castle motif. So he does the same thing in Thirteen Ghosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does the same thing as you say in House on the Haunted Hill. The, the silhouetted heads screaming away. And by the way, um, I was watching this. I was watching it yesterday to prepare, uh, and yeah, you know, people still come into the room saying, "What are you watching?" With all the screaming, what on earth are you watching? Did did they did you? Did you just stop right there and just go like, I'm watching something not for your eyes and just like, <laughs> just kind of like let them wonder what it is. But within that though, we jump into the, jumping into the plot though, it, we open up on a man screaming as he's being taken to the electric chair and we are immediately being transported into this mystery of why is this man screaming when he goes to the electric chair, which is like, it's like the horror film version of when Cagney gets dragged into the, uh, to the electric chair and angels of dirty faces. That was like the first connection that I made to this, but then we get the introduction of Dr. Chapin and Chapin. Is it just, can, I, can I just, can I just stop you a sec? Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Zach. I don't know how this format normally works. There's me dropping it. Oh out. no, please sorry, in, interrupt as much as you want. I don't care. Like, it, it, doesn't that, doesn't that guy have a great face? He looks the, like the a gangster. Convict. He looks like a gangster. He looks like a gangster, but he looks like a special effect. His face is kind of all puffy and, and drawn, and it, and it's really weird. Do you know what? Actually, now that you mention it, EC Comics drew a lot of sinister faces oh, like this. Now you're talking. That's, Absolutely, yeah. This is this is straight out of an EC comic. Like you could freeze frame that and draw yeah. that and make that an EC Comics revival right there. <laughs> so this, this guy is a guy called Bob Gunderson. Only has nine movie credits. Yeah, I would. I you know that that's a trend with a lot of these cast members. Not all mm. of them had huge hits after this. Patricia Cutts, who we're going to talk about later, she did. She had an interesting history given Hitchcock, and we'll get into it in a second. But but there's also Daryl Hickman and Judith Evelyn seem to kind of like narrow down their acting careers although Hickman went on to produce a lot of television later on in his life but Vincent Price is the only one that has like a ton of titles under his belt that you could like pick a throw a dart and you hit a classic in there but Gunderson I didn't know like I would have imagined I had seen him in films that I'd recognize he's got this expression on him that like, I almost wish he was like a part of the full movie I wish they hadn't killed him right away like yeah, and, and there's things about that as well. And then, again, if I'm taking stealing your thunder, just say um, the fact that he's a serial killer who is the brother-in-law mm-hmm. of the well, the lady I guess is not exactly a heroine. Yeah, and it never gets mentioned again. No, no this whole thing happens at the start. It's it's almost like it, it, I'm not criticizing Rob White's script because it's actually pretty tight considering what the film is supposed to be about a monster, it ends up being this like intriguing thriller, but you, I almost want Chapin to study that man or interview that man in like a prelude of some kind before he goes to the electric chair to find out like, why is he screaming? Why is the fear gripping him? But instead we're just taking, taking him right to the slab and we get, we get the brother-in-law of the man who just got killed, who, his, it, you wouldn't expect, there, there's just certain things you're not going to expect in this film, ladies and gentlemen, and one of them will be the character of Ali. Right now, he's just a very mild-mannered human being, you know? He's not, 
we're not going to expect Philip Coolidge to do anything nasty. He's not going to be a he's not going to be a, a a villain of any kind. Wink, wink. Um, but you would have seen him prior in North by Northwest, which we talked about in the Hitchcock series. He's Doctor Cross in North by Northwest. Um, he would also end up being in. He had a limited film career too, but he was also in Inherit the Wind, um, as the mayor. Um, and he's in Bon Voyage, Hamlet, and a film that I enjoy. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Um, as Mr. Porter. Um, but he talks to Chapin and Chapin. I wrote this down because it had been a while since I'd seen this film and I had forgotten all about the thriller plot. I just remembered the tingler being loose in the theater, but he, he's hired by the County to give the autopsies, right? Steve, he doesn't think it's necessary. He doesn't think it's a necessary job to do that. Which, first of all, <laughs> yes, it's necessary. <laughs> it's not. I love how he's just like, this is just so tedious. Like, it does nothing to add to the proceedings whatsoever. Even though, mind you, I am studying fear. and But still, this is just kind of pointless. <laughs> if you're studying fear, wouldn't your first guess to be to play, to be to dissect it in yeah, the sorry. place where people are the most afraid? <laughs> <laughs> but but also i mean I, I love that whole discussion between ollie and chapin because it's so workaday yes. he's slicing into a guy's spine he's got his he's got his sleeves rolled up so he can slice into it and at the same time he's having this completely nice chat with a guy he's never met before who asked him for coffee afterwards yeah you know? and he doesn't and, he doesn't it's like a he doesn't budge an inch, by the way. Ollie never budges an inch or like flinches or anything really like that. He's like very steady. Yeah. He's very steady. Yeah. It's it's kind of And you wanna go you wanna go There's a naked man. There's a naked man in front of you <laughs> with his spine with his spine open, with a scalpel, who you used to know last week. <laughs> Isn't that a little bit strange to be discussing um, I don't know, General um, the news with Vincent Price. <laughs> Vincent, Vincent's just literally just like, look, this this doesn't creep you out here. Look at that, it's a liver. <laughs> that would have been perfect three D. But, but, but also, I think it's great acting by Vincent Price because he kind of does go, but this is my job. Yeah, he he is perfectly comfortable in his skin, and it's it's, it's kind of alarmingly and, and, and in somebody else's. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Digging in there, going like, "Yeah, <laughs> dead alive. It doesn't matter. I'm gonna wrangle around in here as best as I can." <laughs> We're gonna have to have a Vincent Price off oh. at some point. We'll have to do impressions against one another. Oh yeah. Oh, you want to bring it on? Oh, this is <laughs> this is perfect. I've I've always wanted to have a fight with myself. I've, I've done so that many. Is the the price of dealing with me, I think. <laughs> Oh, you are you're already win, young man. You already win. You're you do you want an expensive painting? <laughs> this one's my Monet. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but no, um we get um him going for coffee, as you mentioned. They take him to the movie theater that the that he and his wife run, and it's a silent film only theater, which I know that art houses exist and they existed in this time. How in the world are they making money? <laughs> well, I, 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 there was a little bit of, because um, apparently there's a little, little bit of real life research went into that. Uh, apparently theatres were looking to do something different in the 50s. And, and going back to old movies and showing silent films, apparently it was a bit of a thing. 
enough for them to make a story of it. But I'm going to ask you, I want to flip a different question, which is the recent Oscar-winning movie that, that's reflected there. Ah. <laughs> I guess... Go on, shall we go? No. I, what, about Shape of, what about Shape of Water? Yeah, that's right. Shape of Water. Yeah. My you got a you, you got a deaf you got a deaf mute uh, uh, girl who lives above a theatre. Um, obviously, it goes a bit different from there. But I just thought, wow, where have I seen that scenario recently? And of course, it was Shape of Water. I you know what I that's that's excellent because I I rewatched Shape of Water recently. I must hmm. forget the movie theater aesthetic until I get to that scene where they're in the theater itself because yeah. that. That that scene stands out for me, but like, yeah, that's right. She lives above the theater, and her neighbor watches Phil, uh, Alice Faye uh, movies, and that <laughs> that's perfect. That is a pro- oh, and I'm sure Guillermo del Toro likes William Castle. I oh, absolutely will. I'm sure he has a tingler in his little museum house that he has. <laughs> you know, here, as well oh, as well as in the base of his spine. Open. <laughs> <laughs> You know why I'm calm all the time, guys? You want to know why? <laughs> because I cannot let this thing get out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've got the puppet one in the museum for all of you guys, but what you don't know is what's behind me. <laughs> I take I took it to Disneyland recently. Here's an open invitation. Guillermo del Toro, if for some reason you've listened to this podcast, which First of all, there are better things to do with your time than listening to my voice. But second of all, you've got to you've got to come on the show and tell us about the tingler that you clearly must have inside your movie museum that you have. Um, now, the funny thing though is that the the big showing here though is Tol Abel David, which I've never seen before, but it's an actual film with Richard Barth- Barthelmess, uh, Gladys Hewlett. Walter P. Lewis and Ernest Torrance. It was made by Associated First National, uh, released in November 21st of 1921, and was directed by Henry Henry King and written by Edmund Golding, um, who also did films like Three Live Ghosts and would go on to direct Grand Hotel, uh, Dark Victory, uh, and The Razor's Edge. So this guy had quite a history around him and but he's best known for having his work in the tingler clearly like that's clearly the reason we remember and we're golding today now we meet his wife ollie's wife though too and actually actually actually, exactly i'm gonna want to stop back just a second yeah tolerable david uh which looks an interesting film got remade apparently and i think i think the version that's on is a remake and then there was a remake of that remake um it all sounds quite interesting isn't there a lot of it in this film? Yeah. I mean, this is an 81-minute film, of which at least six minutes are tolerable David in one form or another. I, I mean, So uh, I, I have a question about that to you. I, yeah. I will pose this to you. So it's clear that Castle appreciates Hitchcock because the suspense and the way this film cuts feels slightly like Hitch. Not, not exactly. But I have to wonder, is his reasoning for doing that budgetary? Or is that because he knows it's going to cut well together between the scene of the woman getting away from that fresh guy and then getting attacked by the tingler? I'm curious about that. Mm. For- so I've got I've got a third theory for you. A third theory for you. Oh, third, third, third theory. theory. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I give my third theory? Um, I think it's I was 
trying to figure out the same thing because there's lengthy sections spent on watching this side of the film, which is the film within the film. And I thought, actually, they're kind of getting us accustomed to the idea of watching action happen on the screen as we are in the cinema. Mm -hmm. So suddenly we're watching Tolerable David with the audience and then the tingler comes across the screen. Later on, obviously later on. Um, it cuts, 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 cuts. But the cuts get a bit more frequent and the, the, the bits of Tolerable David get a bit longer. And it's kind of like we're watching it. I, I thought it was quite a clever way to bring us into the movie. Yeah. But... There's a, or either that plus, I'm sure it saved money. You, he must have had some cheap rights to it. I, I, I think that, well, I mean, clearly, if, if it's coming from a place like Allied Artists, like, or like, what is it here? Associated First National. So this was before First National got acquired by Warner Brothers. So maybe this is something that Warner's let slide. But I, I, I agree with you because it does get you involved in the movie that they're watching. So that when the final scene happens, you feel invested and involved. No, that's a perfect way to describe it. I mm. I looked at it from a cutter's perspective where it's like, okay, if I lengthen out these scenes of Tollable David intercut with the limited puppet, because I really think Castle's really trying to cut back on how much he uses this puppet, because I think he knows the puppet's not... The, the puppet of the Tingler is not ineffective, but you can see the strings especially on a Blu-ray copy today. And yeah. it's it's a little bit lackluster in its movement, except when, as you mentioned, when it's crawling up Vincent Price's arm. Um, so, yeah. like, I wondered if he was trying to cut back on how much of it he used. Um, but the cutting of it suggests this suspense, and it's the kind of suspense that I that I don't expect from a movie like this where you are really trying to, to lengthen it out and get the, the audience on edge. And we've already seen at this point what the Tingler can do. So it does make sense that he would lengthen it out. And yes, as we, we, as we both proclaim, this probably saved him a couple of days of filming to just show this um, and a couple of reels of film as a result. But we, we, we learn about that. We learn about his, Ollie's wife though. Yeah. Judith Evelyn, who we have talked about before, because she was Miss Lonely Hearts in Rear Window. Yes. Um, she was a very accomplished stage actress. Very accomplished. Um, she had met Vincent Price while doing Angel Street. And I love her performance. She is fantastic. It's the same pantomime that she's kind of doing for Hitch um, in Rear Window. And she just plays... She she plays deaf and mute so incredibly well. I, I oh my god. Del Toro might have shown Sally Hawkins this movie. <laughs> oh my god, it would make the most sense. <laughs> so so I, I I also I have an accompanying theory to that by the way, which is that uh, and uh, unfortunately, well I'll I'll tell you unfortunately in a minute. Um, I watched it and I thought she looks like she's playing a silent film actress. Mm -hmm. Like her actions, her exaggerated, the, the, the facial expressions are all over the place. And, and it looked like somebody who'd done nothing but watch silent films, was a deaf mute character and, uh, and, it, and was kind of acting things out. I, I, and I read that. And um, you must have read Tim Lucas, the video watchdog, Marion Barber. I mean, fantastic writer. I love Tim's stuff. Uh, kind of worship the guy. And, uh, and, and I thought that's such a good theory. It must have been written about. Um, 
And of course, Tim Lucas has already written that her performance resembles that of a silent movie actress. But I just thought it was great. Uh, it, it's um, incredibly evocative. And also, uh, what I was going to say, Zach, with it as well, is one thing this movie does extremely well, you don't really know where any of the characters come from. You don't, they're all unpredictable. Yeah. Nobody does what you think they're going to do. Um, and she's a great example. You know, you, you have a, a deaf mute lady and you think, okay, she's going to be um, a heroine, a victim, whatever. But she's quite odd. Yeah. She's quite odd. She's obsessive about money. She has to do certain things. She's a bit OCD, you know. Yeah. Um, you have to wonder how the gregarious, outgoing Ollie got together with the the unusual, um, uh, you yeah, um, well, their 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 union is interesting, and it plays into the one of the most. I would argue that the most interesting parts of this movie have nothing to do with the Tingler. They have mm. to do with this character. They have to do with Martha, and they have to do with Ollie in particular too, because we'll get to it. Like pretty, it's pretty quick because this movie is very short. But you talk about that unpredictability. I felt that way about Doctor Chapin too, because completely when he goes back to the to his house, and we meet. And we meet uh, Lucy and Dave, and Lucy and Dave are your are, are your young love interests and whatnot. And Lucy is Warren's Warren Chapin's sister in law, and Dave is his assistant, his lab assistant, who is very eager to find abandoned animals out on the street for these experiments. <laughs> the darkest character in this movie is Dave. Look, I found you a dog. Don't need a dog. The cat was all right. And now we're a human. <laughs> Look, I found a pig. I, Dave, Dave, wait a minute. Did you just go to a farm and just steal a pig? Yeah. Why? What's wrong with it? Well, nothing. You seen an expression on this pig? This is an evil pig. Of course I have. Nothing. Nothing except the fact that it has a tag around it that says clearly <laughs> property of Farmer Vincent's Critters. Like that. <laughs> I'm, oh, deep reference. Yeah, Nicely done. Yeah. Motel Hell. A film that keeps growing in my mind the more I watch it. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I was like, this is fine. And then I watched it again. And I'm like, no, this is pretty fucking good. <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever seen it. It's one of those ones because Kevin O'Connor was very to direct it to watch yeah and then he went to the states did that and disappeared so <laughs> that's that is a film where the poster unnerves me because of the head sticking out of the ground like that and then when you watch the movie because they're feeding they're feeding them like like plants and it is odd oh, it it unnerves me now <laughs> like it unnerves me so much i think you'd like it steve watch motel hey, audience out there watch motel hell it's a lot of fucking fun um this is the movie that will keep me alive even if it doesn't keep the cast alive yeah, oh my god you rewatch motel hell every day for the rest of your life <laughs> you could be a god on this you'll live as long as kev moore you'll live as long as that that ancient Nobody can live as long as kev. he's gonna be at the end of the universe going like right what's next <laughs> <laughs> is that all <laughs> actually what Kev will be saying is oh, I found this other remix of Frankie Goes to Hollywood I think you probably haven't heard this one <laughs> I know Kev hello <laughs> is anybody out there <laughs> oh my god I'm the only one who can listen to it now <laughs> this is terrible Smokey Smokey where are you oh Ty with a beer in his hand Typical. <laughs> anyway, I, I know what I'm talking. I I I I know exactly how Vincent Price feels, though, as he's 
looking at all of these things that he has access to because I can imagine like to, to have somebody that dedicated to, to your cause. I, I, I love, cause I, I get a lot of like nice compliments in my life since I've like turned my life around and I'm like, that's like such a nice feeling. And that's the same feeling Dr. Chapin must have to have such a dedicated assistant like Dave. This is like the most like, loyal dedicated like kind human being imaginable like i you love to have people like that in your life even though the amount of animals he's bringing him is alarming and i also don't believe that he just happened to find these animals i don't believe it i don't believe it for a second steve this this guy is going to the fucking pound and stealing things <laughs> But there's also the fact that he's engaged to the nicest woman in the world, who happens to be his sister-in-law, who he's obviously far more in tune with than he is his actual wife. So Chapin's sister-in-law is absolutely lovely. Once again, with David, David, he's every night of the life. David's going to go, hey, brought a guinea pig. She's going to say, no, no, I don't want the guinea pig. No. no. <laughs> oh, look, 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 I bought this eagle. <laughs> I'll have an eagle. No, I don't want the eagle. Don't sit down and have some tea. Will you stop bringing, you are, look, my brother-in-law, Chapin, is no longer part of the picture. <laughs> we, 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 we escaped so that we could be safe from the tingler. You've got to stop bringing animals in. I know it's a compulsion with you, David, but you've got to fucking stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Hollywood marriage that, for you. And they did stay married, those two. That, really, you know. they, stayed, they, stayed, they stayed married up until, I thought this was interesting, they stayed alive up until, um, God, 1982, I think it was. Yeah, like they stayed. That was the start of their relationship, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. They. <laughs> I love the idea that after working on the Tingler, it's like we've got to spend the rest of our lives with each other because only we will believe the stories we tell each other. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I, I like the idea of Castle officiating that ceremony, and then at the end, everybody gets shocked in their seats at the ceremony. <laughs> and then, and then, a, I'm just thinking the wedding day speech, the wedding, the wedding day. Species, and she's saying, "Well, you know, I was so delighted to marry him. We don't really need any more dogs, but despite that, he's a lovely guy." <laughs> I've opened up. I've opened up a dog sitting service for myself. Just me. I don't get paid anything. I just walk them all and take care of them. Help, help. Yeah, but some of them, some of them disappear from time to time. I don't know why that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very mysterious, Lucy. Why are they disappearing? Wink, wink, wink. No, hang on. Hang on. It, take? it took her 24 years to figure it out. 24 years. That's why they divorced. It wasn't because of Daryl Hickman having <laughs> issues that he had to work out from his life as a child actor, which, by the way, Hickman was a child actor. One of his first big roles was playing the son of Ronald Coleman in a movie. So this is a guy who had quite a career up to it. I found this interesting too. Apparently, he when he graduated high school, he had a hard time adjusting to adult life, and he spent a month as a monk in a monastery. <laughs> so only only in Hollywood will somebody just retire from acting temporarily to become a monk. Um, it's I I can't imagine what it must be to be a child actor at that point. So all props to him because that's that can't be an easy life. Um, and then, and then he tried the haircuts and thought, yeah, maybe a month is long enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, some of us are stuck with it, as we've said. Yeah, no, some of us are, but like, but, but you also carry it with distinct distinguishment and grace. And I will not. I'll, I'll hear. Well, ble bless you, my son. Yeah, as we say. Yes, exactly. I'm a monk right now. <laughs> I'm a monk in this monastery of podcasting. 
<laughs> I didn't take a vow of silence though. I told them like, nah, you can't get that out of me. <laughs> um, but the other, but you brought up the wife. Let's talk about Isabel for a second. Played by Patricia yes. Cutts. She now she has both experience both in the American scene and in the British scene. In the UK, she was known for a series called Spider's Web. And oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, she was um she was in the series Spider's Web before she accepted the role of Blanche Hunt on on Coronation Street in 1974. And unfortunately, it uh, only after two episodes she committed suicide by barbiturate poisoning. So a very sad story, but in America, she had an interesting history. She was appearing on shows like The Lucy Show, Car 54, Where Are You, Playhouse 90. Now, her father, though, had an interesting background with one of Castle's luminaire, like uh, idols, which was Hitchcock, because Hitchcock worked for a gentleman named Graham Cutts. Graham Cutts hired a young Hitchcock, and Hitchcock upstaged him, and Graham Cutts did not like him at all. Uh, for more information on that, listen to Adam's Secret History of Hollywood series on Alfred Hitchcock. Um, but apparently, Hitchcock bore no ill grudge against Graham Cutts because he cast Patricia Cutts in North by Northwest as the woman who is in the hospital bed when Cary Grant walks across the hospital room. She turns on the lights and goes, Stop! Then she gets another look at Cary Grant and goes, stop, <laughs> which is the correct response. Um, and um, but she uh, but her in the tingler, she is a devious wife, a devious wife yeah. holding on to her fortune and screwing around behind Dr. Chapin's back. And what I was going to get to with Vincent Price's character turns in this movie, I'm not expecting Chapin to get out a gun. I I know it's filled with blanks, but a gun nonetheless and confront his wife, scare her with a blank shot and get her on a table slab to see, to take the x-rays of her and see where something might lie dormant. And that's where we get the notice and noticing of the tingler. This is the first time they noticed the tingler and she, they go through like, what do we know? About the Tingler. We know that it exists, number one. <laughs> Good start off. Good thing to start off with. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, Rach and Rays can't penetrate it, so we know it's solid. And then we know that fear alone exercises it, gives it strength, and then on, or energizes it. And then four is that it exists in every human being. You know how creepy that concept is? knowing even how schlocky this movie is to an extent. I th- I thought about my back for about an hour after watching the film again <laughs> a couple of days ago. Because I'm just like, what if? Because I get that tingling since... I don't know if anybody's ever slept before and you suddenly feel like your back tense up and it almost feels like it's like a nerve twitching and you can't get rid of it. I've had that before. And now I'm just going to think it's the tingler going forward. Anytime that I'm thrust awake by that, it's just the tingler wants exercise, so it wants me to scream out loud in the middle of the night. That I don't know, like now, like how Steve, I wanted to ask, like to backtrack a little bit, like how young were you when you saw the film eventually? Well, the tingler, no, the tingler came to a bit later, actually, maybe sixteen, seventeen. I think I'd, I'd read about it, um, and I, I kind of remember. And again, it would have been another late night Friday TV show. Um, but I've always, because of course, 
I knew about Percepto, but Percepto was long in the past for me. Um, so what I was watching was this quite strange film. Well, well, I mentioned already that everything was unpredictable. Yeah. Um, it's a very famous scene we'll talk about in a minute, which was the, 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 which I assumed was the gimmick of the film. Of course, it's not the only gimmick of the film that the Percepto was. Um, but, it, but yeah, I guess I was probably 16. I kind of primed for it. Always slightly disappointed in the in the baby fingered tingler itself. Yeah. Um, well, as I say, there are certain shots in the film which are very very effective, but it doesn't doesn't really move very effectively. And and, and when I was sixteen, I, I saw I probably saw Alien the same year, so I, I had some idea of how creepy things worked. Um, but it was it was unsettling, and, and I still say, and this was a strange thing. Like I say I watched it yesterday. You don't know what anybody's doing. No. Vincent Price doesn't just do one unpredictable thing. He's just two or three in a film. You think, hang on, is he? This, this is another scene coming up. We'll talk about it in a minute. Well, you think, did he? Did he just do that? Yeah. And, and, and actually, it's unresolved. So we'll talk about it in a second. But sorry, one thing I want to go back. We're talking about Isabel. Yeah. Um, no. The one thing I love about Isabel is there's like a sleazy theme place for every time she's on. You know, yeah. Every time she's on, when he's just shot her. She's lying on the bed. You can see her exposed back. And the theme comes back up. <laughs> Look at a dead woman here. You don't do sleazy music for a dead woman. Because well, at that point, we don't know she's not dead. Yeah. Now, the, 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 the detriment of Blu-ray will always be that you can always notice things more clearly. And one of them is like, yeah, she's breathing. You can see her breathing on the table. <laughs> but you're right. I actually had, I was taken aback for a second and going like, oh my God, I don't remember her dying. Like, oh, no, 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 no. She gets back up. And the idea of like this whole scheme, because like Isabel is holding on to the family money and it's very clear that she killed her father to get that money. Very, very clear. Very clear you should fear Patricia. Like she is a, (laughs) it's like, it's like William Castle saw the term femme fatale and gave it cocaine. That's what she, that's what he did. Because it's just a femme fatale on fucking cocaine because it's, it's every angle of the femme fatale and his noir background fits into this so perfectly. She's cunning. She's ruthless. She does not want to mess. She's not going to mess around. And when she knows she's in a corner, she knows how to flip the switch to nice wife. (laughs) Super (laughs) fucking quick. And the the, 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 the one line I love, uh, and this is Vincent Price and this is Rob White at his finest. He says, this gun, this would leave a hole in you the size of a, Medium grapefruit. <laughs> now that's very specific. Yeah, not a large grapefruit, not a small grapefruit. Michael Caine. Medium. Michael. Grapefruit. Michael. Michael Caine saw that and said, "Like, but it's not a ruby the size of a tangerine." <laughs> <laughs> That, or is it not? This is a not. No, 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 no. That Michael Caine and Vincent Price are in the same league with each other. They're both luminary actors who have appeared in several classic films, and they know how to analogize anything <laughs> scandalous, wealth-ridden, or violent with fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm 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 shocked. I wonder if Christopher Nolan's a fan of the Tangler. <laughs> like, well, I don't want a medium grapefruit, but what if I don't know a tangerine? <laughs> like, that sounds. A we little we are making we're we're making a case here. I think I, for the the Tingler being the Kevin Bacon of movies. Really, aren't we? Six degrees. Everything really comes back. Six degrees of tingler. separation from the Tingler. Oh, I my. think so. Oh, Tim Burton's only two degrees away because he worked with Vincent Price. So there, there you of go. Tim, Tim might be the closest yeah. we have 
I'm not going to lie. That's, oh, that's John Waters is one degree away from the Tingler on an honorary scale because he's clearly taken the taken Castle to the next level. Um, but this is where I, I want to talk about here. There's an element of this film that happens along. We're, do, we're still trying to do the experiments with fear to see where the Tingler will emerge and how it will emerge. And one of them is lysergic acid or... LSD, <laughs> which at the time was not illegal. It was actually being used for psycho- for treatment of psychosis and ther- therapies of sorts. Cary Grant was known for doing LSD sessions, um, which apparently worked wonders for him in terms of coming to terms with his relationship with his father and mother. But Rob White said this, and this was quoted directly, I wanted something different from the typical shot of pills um, shot, shots or pills that you'd see in movie trips, um, like a tri- like a trip, and so Aldous Huxley told me a doctor at UCLA was running an experiment on LSD. So I went there to see this man, Doctor Cohen, and he gave me a sum of it. He took me into a nice little room with a cot and a radio, and he got something out of his fridge, gave me a shot. It was all legal then. I watched the grain in the wood writhing around and listened to the music. It was all pleasant, although I'd never want to do it again. I went back to Vincent, told him about it, what the real reaction would be. I just wondered if Vincent wasn't going to do something dramatic without falling around and all that stuff. He said, forget it. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? I would say this trip pretty reasonable like it's not too exploitative of the lsd thing like do you think that was due to a lack of uh experience i mean the the, uh, the trip that judith goes through later is is kind of much more like you might expect a movie trip to be um do it had budget for one i mean the only thing that vincent gets uh, actually we haven't really explained why this happens um but the only thing that Vincent gets is like the smeary vision of the skeleton. Yeah, uh, it's all kind of external. It, it's it's quite interesting. But yeah, you're right. This I think was a kind of legitimate treatment of LSD at the time. Uh, and like you say, it wasn't illegal. It was unusual. But you could actually because uh, he asks at one point, um, Ollie and he are talking later, and he says, "Do you have a chemist nearby?" And the, imp- the impression you're given is he's going down to the chemist yeah. to buy some more LSD. Whether that yeah, it's probably not the case as it turns out. That, 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 well, that and that is interesting too because there was confusion on my part as to whether or not Vincent Price gave her the LSD or if Ollie was giving the LSD because it's kind of I yeah. Don't think she takes LSD. So then I so that's what I thought Price was giving her, but because both her and Ollie experienced the same thing, it can't be the case, but it was unclear to me. So when she has her trip, which by the way, before I get to that, when he's reading the book on lysergic acid, the cover is on the wrong end of the book. Yes, it is. <laughs> I wrote for a better camera angle. I wrote down the note. Is this? Is he reading manga? Like, is he reading <laughs> Japanese comics? Because that that would make more sense to me. I and the the commentator, <laughs> the, the the man on the commentary, Steve Haverman, point out, you know, like I don't understand. They could have just shot it from another angle, and I. I do love in the commentary where somebody's like, I don't understand why they fucking did this, but who am I to judge history, I guess? <laughs> but he goes back because he's worried about... 
people, please remain calm. The tingler is loose in the podcast again. Don't panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. That's it. That's a good scream right there. Yes, that's a good one, too. Oh, yes, I think it's gone. Oh, people, people, I think it's yes, yes. The tingler has been paralyzed thanks to your screaming. We will now resume the podcast. Well, that, we're, we're back. That was a weird occurrence there where uh, the tingler got loose in, our, in, in the podcast. I, I, Steve, I think your premonition at the top was like, was, was spot on. You knew that something was going to happen. Are you, are you Bill fucking Castle? <laughs> uh, no, I think I'm the opposite. I'm probably spineless. <laughs> <laughs> there's an there's an idea, a William Castle gimmick surrounding a movie called Spineless. That <laughs> that would have been incredible. That's the sequel to The Tingler. That's the sequel to The Tingler. Is spineless. <laughs> Tingler two. I don't think there's ever been a has it been a movie called Spineless? I don't think there has been a movie called Spineless. I mean, but we know Spineless. What a great time. horror premise that would be. That uh, Spineless Hat, of course. Yeah, the, the the I I think that Spineless would make a great that would make a great commentary written horror film, like a social commentary written horror film. Like that would be like yes. a good Jordan Jordan Peele's next movie should be called Spineless. Like and just and just <laughs> and just and just portray a bunch of white people acting like j- jackasses, and that would be perfect. <laughs> um. Because 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 we are, but I'm gonna get to this part here though. Now that we're back from the tingler getting loose yeah. in our podcast, the the LSD thing, um, it it, ex- it the way it's portrayed, I'm not like completely like abhorred by it. Like it's not like disrespectful to a certain degree. He does give himself double the dosage that it recommends in the book, so he kind of opened himself up to a bad trip to begin with. Let alone how much he was putting into his body. And the one thing that I wanted to make note of, you don't the, you don't do this in a doctor's office. There's so many scalpels and like things you can trip on, like. The cot and the radio is the perfect way to do this because <laughs> he just picked the wrong room, man. But, but well, the other thing also is he injects it. Yeah, I mean, whoever heard of anybody injecting LSD? I mean, that's that's unusual. Yeah. Uh, also, if you're a needle needle phobic person, there's a lot of needles in this movie. A lot of needles. Yeah. You know, he does he does the same thing that Judith in the next scene. You know. Yeah, gives her, Martha as she's called. He gives her a shot to calm down, and actually, so Ooh. like the, the 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 context for that is he goes back because he realizes like oh. I screamed, so it, it must have gotten the tingler away. Well, the only way it could be threatening to somebody is for somebody who doesn't scream. And we suddenly yes. realize the entire mm. mute community is completely screwed. Um, <laughs> but so he goes back to Ollie and Martha's place to check on in, uh, in on her. He gives her um, he gives her something to calm down. Um, and the reason that I thought that he gave her the LSD was because I thought this guy has been unpredictable to this point, pulling guns out for his experiments. Maybe he's willing to go this next step and freak Martha out. But doesn't Isabel set that up a bit as well? Isn't there a conversation with Isabel just before where she says you'd kind of do anything for science or, or words to that effect? Exactly. And then he turns up and talks to Ollie and says, oh, Ollie, is there a chemist nearby? And we know he's looking for a living victim for LSD. Yeah. So that's why I that's where I kind of made the connection. But what happens and follows is that Martha gets up and is seeing 
a haunted house spectacle occur in her fucking apartment. And I did not remember this. And the only other time that I've really seen this in a film done beautifully is in um, uh, Spellbound, where you have the one quick flash of red as the gun goes off near the end in, in Spellbound. But she has a trip. She's going through. Doors are opening. Things are popping out. A, a furry hand with an axe throws an axe at her. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and she goes to the bathroom, and the bathroom, the water is bathing in blood. Like, it's blood red. And you can tell that this is an effects plate shot because that is the only portion in the film as it exists today that is a little bit wonky quality-wise. I started really... Now, have you, uh, did you watch it on the indicator No, disc? No, I have the Scream Factory case, which I would hey. assume... Maybe they're the same print because sometimes they share prints between the uk and us labels i'm not sure because indicator made a point of restoring that in 4k and it looks a lot better like you i did i kind of remember it the first time i saw it, it looked like everything was rendered in tipex you know that everything was thick and not quite working um this time it, it looked phenomenal actually uh, i say i'd be i'd be curious to know um if they are the same print maybe 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 they aren't because if yours looked better than what my mine's kind of like fu- has a lot of fuzzy fuzzy elements to it it looks crisp like the print looks crisp crisp but when it gets to that note it reminds me of whenever i rewatch star trek the motion picture and i see the effects plates and i can clearly see where the film is changing to that effects plate it's not and it's not a detriment to star trek the motion picture i mean the story is the detriment to star trek the motion picture but um and the time but those effects plates, I always said, like, if they're going to restore Star Trek The Motion Picture in 4K, they need to get on those effects plates ASAP. And I still have yet to pick it up to see if they actually listen to my telekinetic waves, because I, <laughs> I telepathic waves, because I want to make sure that they listened to me this time. But that, <laughs> but that, but that effects plate shot, I had a logic question, which was ultimately, if this is red... And the rest of their house is in black and white. Are we dealing with a Pleasantville situation here? Are these guys in a, like a Pleasantville scenario? <laughs> and did Don Knotts just messed up by giving the wrong kid the remote <laughs> like that? Did, but did, did you read how they did it? How they actually did the sequence? That I didn't get into. No, if you know, please. That was great. It's such a good story. It's um, because we, we there was a. Uh, do you ever see? Have you ever seen the goodies? No. The Goodies is a UK TV series, which was a bit of a, it's a 70s thing, massive on UK TV in the 70s. Um, but they did one episode, which was supposedly a black and white movie, but kept having bits of colour in it. And what they were doing, and the joke was, everything was colour, but they they scrubbed it up in black and white. <laughs> and they, they kept making mistakes. This apparently, this set, this bathroom set, was all filmed in colour. But they black and whited everything. They monochromed everything. So only the bath water showed as red, um, oh. in, uh, including the interactions of the actress with it as well. Uh, incredibly cleverly done, if that was really the case. But that's what the claim was, was happening. It was colour stock, but they, they, they actually did use makeup to make everything black and white. Very clever. That is, that is remarkable. That is absolutely mm. remarkable. That would also probably explain why the print mic looks a little bit the way it does. Because, and also, I, I have this to bring up. Like, it's a more sincere allusion to the present than the joke ones we were making earlier. But Spielberg used that technique for Schindler's List with the girl with the red coat. And so, Completely. like, that's that's something where I'm like, I'm wondering how much of this 
those ideas just kind of permeate into something a little bit different. Cause I don't know of many drama films that did this effect of this time. If, if anybody knows about it, please get us, get, hit me up on Twitter and tell me where these are. But this whole haunted house sequence ends with Martha dying. We think wink, stay tuned. Um, <laughs> and, the tingler meanwhile is is a, the tingler meanwhile is still being investigated by price ollie calls chapin to say like my wife is dead and he brings her to the house and that's when they get out the tingler they pull it out of her back and i love the decency of chapin to set up a surgical little uh uh barrier so that it's coming out in silhouette because it looks lovely <laughs> coming out as a silhouette it looks alive looks so much better than that doesn't it and then the puppet yeah <laughs> it's almost like you wish that the puppet was in shadow the entire time to a certain extent because because once it comes out it starts first it tries to kill vincent by strangling him uh and they get it uh paralyzed by a scream and (laughs) isabel takes this as a good point to go like we'll say i know how to get rid of my husband i'm going to ply him up with liquor laced with some kind of knockout and i am going to unleash the tingler on him (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, I'm going to pause you right there. Yeah. I just want to go back to a slight bit. So we talked about the experience of, that Martha has in the apartment with the ghost story, the, the carnival show, uh, the guy with the head, the, the, the axe, etc. Um, the timeline does not work at all. Mm-hmm. Vincent Price leaves. All this stuff, Ollie says he's going for a beer. All this stuff happens to Martha. Ollie then, Vincent Price then gets home. Yeah. Has a quick conversation. Then Ollie rings to say, I've been out for a couple of beers. We see Vincent Price coming through the door. Ollie rings out and says, I've been out for a couple of beers, got home about one. My wife's dead. And you think, no, no, hang on, this has all happened in 10 minutes. Also, he had a lot of running around to that apartment, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, the timeline completely breaks at this point. Oh, plus also, Ollie now has a car. Ollie needed a lift at the start from Vincent Price. He needed a lift from the jail into the centre of town. Yeah. Now he's driving his poor dead wife around in a car. <laughs> Something's. This, I think Rob White was having an off day, maybe in this scene. He's just like, look, I'm. I'm really all I'm thinking about is that mummy that Bill stole from me from Macabre. I'm really. I'm not having it today. <laughs> Fuck it, 1 a.m., 10 a.m., does it really fucking matter? That you guys are here to get your asses buzzed. Look, this is the this is why you're fucking here. This is what he's from Boston. This is why you're fucking here. Now, he uh now, but that that's that's a good point because also the idea of like the only the only way that I could make sense of it is because Ollie sees in Chapin an opportunity to get rid of his wife, which we're gonna get into like spoiler alert ollie murders his wife quote unquote um and i figured like i I would figure like well maybe he's trying to ingratiate him and so this is part of his larger scheme but it also seems like ollie is too timid to come up with a scheme (laughs) like this oh yeah he's too like he reminds me a lot of william h macy and fargo if he didn't have guts (laughs) (laughs) I think I think it was uh, this Kim Newman says on one of the commentaries of this. He says, "Look, he goes this elaborate charade to scare her. Why doesn't he push her down the stairs? <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's so much easier." <laughs> 
well, then we wouldn't have a movie. (laughs) I love that phrase. Well, then we wouldn't have a movie. And this is pushing it to the limits. (laughs) (laughs) Then we wouldn't have a movie, would we? No, exactly. Yeah, Bill Castle just coming out of the screen itself to just be like, now, now, now. I don't want to hear any of you (laughs) naysayers out there. You you fanboys of Reddit, we're not here to take your guff anymore. <laughs> your film guff. Oh my god, yes, we've got a film guff. And Kev comes out and goes, Hi, it doesn't matter. Enjoy the movie. <laughs> goes back into the screen. Because he's I'm convinced, by the way, that Kev is a background actor in all of these movies we've discussed, by the way. Because he oh, again, he's, like, yeah. he's an eternal. He's like Zelig. Yeah, he's, he's Zelig. He absolutely he's, is. He's the Zelig. He's the Zelig of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> appears everywhere at the most important moments. Now, yeah. now here we come though to the climax because the tingler is let loose by Isabel, who uses it as an opportunity to make a break for it. Which, sure, by, uh, by Felicia, the the she then goes. They they then go back to Ollie's place because they realize they've got to put the tingler back in her in order for the tingler to not cause any more havoc. They get there and then that's when it's fully revealed that he he gets a suspicion early on that like Ollie did this. So he confronts Ollie and before they can do anything to resolve it, the tingler escapes through a little open air vent in the house and it leads to the theater and we get the scene that everybody came for, for the tingler, which is our involvement. We are showing tollable Dave. Uh, a woman is getting hit on by this man. And my, my kept screaming at the TV, like, stop it, leave her alone. <laughs> he, he's also the main screamer in the initial credits. Mm-hmm. Pat Colby. He's the guy that's doing the big scream, the big male scream at the start. And was that the same girl? That one of the screaming girl heads is that the same? I think she is. I think she is. Yeah, I think I think the three of them are all in that audience. Yeah, so he got he got double work out of them. Hey, you know, it's a good pays work as long as you're not cramming it in one day. You know, good male scream. You know, male screams. There are certain certain filmmakers really love a male scream, and uh, Castle definitely does. I I think I think it's an underrated. There's no scream king out there, is there? Like we call like the king of gore or something like that. There's no scream king. In horror, is <laughs> that's true? Actually, who is Screaming King? I'm going to nominate this guy. I'm going to nominate this guy for it. Pat Colby. Yeah, Pat, Pat Colby Col- is Screaming King. Pat, Pat Colby is the Scream King, and Jamie Lee Curtis is the Scream Queen. There of you course. go. Yeah, and we'll coronate them at a ball, and they can have the first <laughs> dance, and then yeah. and Michael Myers can play the dean of this horror high school, and. <laughs> So long as we get invitations, as long as we get to serve oh my, the bloody bear. Oh my God, Donald Pleasance as Doctor Loomis is 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 the superintendent of the school district. <laughs> Michael, oh, get out of here! Um, now, is, is this a bloody Mary? <laughs> yes, I rather think it is. I'm telling you, there was punch that was spiked, Sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta believe me. 
Oh my God. Kev, by, sidetrack, by the way. Thank you to Kev Moore for introducing me to Amicus because of From Beyond the Grave. Watching him mm. and watching Donald Pleasance and his daughter being creepy as all get out was a treat, yeah. to say the least. And if you want more Donald Pleasance, ladies and gentlemen, watch Terror in the Isle, which is just a compilation film of horror clips hosted by, amongst other people, Donald Pleasance. <laughs> it's it's. Great. It's amazing. I'm almost tempted to like, I want to write a letter to rated H and be like, cover this film. I dare you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And now we get to the big part of it. This is where the lights would go out in the theater and we'd have Vincent Price going, "Uh, people don't be alarmed, but scream, scream for your life. The tingler is loose in this theater. And the this, but 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 there's but there's two on there. Yeah, there's two. There's, there's, a, there's a break. There's the one where they say, "Don't worry, a young lady has fainted," which apparently was a thing he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Castle used to have he used to have a, a nurse attending to a young lady who fainted. Yeah, but you'd see he'd already had one. And and again, I'd never noticed this till this viewing. Um, he does it twice. He does the blackout twice. You always we, we remember the one we remember. I've forgotten he sets it up. Um, yeah, he, sorry. He, yes. he throw, no, it's it's good you mentioned that because he throw he's throwing the audience off. The, the audience yeah. would be expected to think at this point that this is when they're going to have the percepto play into effect. But yeah, exactly right. And on top of that, like the plants in these theaters, he had a couple different plants and several different ones. I know that for um, the uh, the fright break uh, one that he did, you had. Um, he eventually did something called Coward's Corner for the people who were for for the film that he was doing. Fright Break was people had forty five seconds to get a refund if they were too scared. People kept taking advantage of it, and Castle said, "Oh well, um, you can get your refund, but I'm gonna fucking shame you." So they would take him up to Coward's Corner where they would have to sign a affidavit that said that they were a chicken. And in order to get their (laughs) refund and he had plants in there and including one was a nurse to check their blood pressure to make sure they were okay. And that plant of the nurse and the plant of a fainting woman, by the way, which that has to be, I think, a great way to pick up extra bucks in college. Just being a professional fainter. (laughs) That is a great college side gig, guys. We need this to happen in movie theaters more often. But then we get the second shutdown. And the second shutdown is the classic one that everybody knows. And I wrote down what White described as the ultimate horror story that doesn't necessarily have to do with the Tingler. But the vibrators, uh, Castle had purchased these military surplus airplane winged icers that shake the ice off of the wings when vibrating. And these small motors were installed into the seats. Rob White said, we didn't want to buy thousands of vibrators without knowing that they would really work out. So we scouted around until we found a theater in the valley that was showing the nun story. The nun story was going to close on Sunday night and the tingler was going to open on Monday. We got in a huge group of people to spend the day at attaching the vibrators to the seats. But that night, just as the most tragic moment in the nun story was occurring, somebody flipped the master switch and seats began vibrating in wave after wave. There was absolute pandemonium. So the nun story got interrupted by the percepto buzzers on the tingler. That is, I, I've never seen the nun story. It's with Audrey Hepburn it's a it's a drama film that has to be the most 
alarming thing ever. It's like selling me, yeah, you're going to watch Saving Private Ryan, and also there's going to be a shock under your seat during the D-Day sequence. Yeah, but, but you see, if you see, if you're talking exotic films with nuns, show that with the devils. Show Ken Russell's The Devils and a few vibrating seats. I think everybody would be quite happy. Yeah. And I, I would have pitched Black Narcissus, but I think you should watch Black Narcissus as art <laughs> and not as a William Castle experience. That Powell and Pressburger, <laughs> nah, I didn't like that. <laughs> that, that. That to me, though, is so amazing that the that somebody had the idiocy to flip that switch. I guess it's you could chalk that up to like, we don't know what you're do- what we're doing here because this is a brand new gimmick. Like, it's it's just fascinating to me, but they get the t- the everybody screams and the sound quality on this film, by the way, is fantastic. The screaming section in particular is flat mm. out like remastered in like at, like Dolby sound, like it sounds incredible. And they find out that the that the tingler's in the projection booth and it's it's getting at the projectionist like ah ah ah. He did. He, they get it down on the ground. It's paralyzed. They get it in its little cage. He returns it to Martha and we get into the moral dilemma of what Ollie did, which Ollie basically scared her to death essentially because of the tingler. And they go into this moral dilemma to which Chapin responds, like responds kind of like, I guess in a gray area where he's just like, I, I, I don't know what to say about that either way. Like, it's it's almost like I don't have an answer for what you did, bro. I mean, I know it's murder, period. Like you you did it with intent. I saw your big suitcase full of props, <laughs> like like walking around like your fucking carrot top. This this gentleman is a murderer, no matter what the circumstances. And he he goes to call the police, and that's when the doors start shutting, and the horror effects take place again. And we see that Martha rises up from a sheet underneath, like a sheet underneath. She's alive this whole time and scares him to death because he can't scream. Okay. Is that the way you read it? That's how I read it. Because I I, 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 I kind of thought, first of all, the ending makes no sense whatsoever. No, it does. It's a brilliant, it's it's a brilliant, scary thing. And it's very clever. And in fact, I think this go back to Castle's infatuation with Le, Le Diabolique because there's a lot of similar stuff. And that, that ending scene is very, very similar to scenes in Le Diabolique. Um, but I read it as maybe, maybe the tingler being inserted back into it was something that no, nobody ever done before. So maybe the tingler kind of had control of her. But also it's a good, scary ending. Also, there's absolutely no logic in him. Ollie suddenly can't scream. Why can't Ollie scream? He's... he's vocal cords he's done it all before yeah um, no i but, I, but, the, but the thing it really leads up to so, sorry no i was gonna say you're right and i didn't think of it that way but now it's gonna be stuck in my head next time i watch the tingler which i <laughs> i want to show my girlfriend the movie because when i told her the idea of the movie she was just like that sounds scary and i'm like you haven't seen this puppet <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen this fucking puppet. This is this is one crazy film. But but another thing, another thing about this film is there's absolutely no justice. No, there's no justice. <laughs> is Isabel? It's horrible. Tries to kill her husband. Seems to get away with it. Vincent Price may or may not have injected Martha. He's either injected her with barbiturates or LSD, one or the other. But we don't know which. 
If he injected her with LSD, then it's kind of all his plan come true. Yeah. If he injected with barbiturates, how come she's awake yeah. for the whole nightmare sequence? So the, the, none of that. But all these slightly dodgy characters, apart from Ollie, well, yeah, apart from Ollie, get away with it. And we're assuming that Ollie is going to have his own spine broken by his own tingler for reasons we don't really understand. I mean, it, it's a great ending to a film. Completely no sense to it. No, it's it's for one last scare. It's the one last scare, like um, as as Scream pointed out, like this is when the killer gets up one last time to provide one last scare, like that. It's 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 interesting because the way the film has laid itself out in several different genres with several different despicable characters, which which let's not forget Dave again, the dog napper of the century, and. <laughs> I think he's he's probably a saint back in those days. Yeah, back well, in the compared to the others, is he the is he the least egregious? Because he hasn't killed these animals; he's just taking them. Like he, if anything, <laughs> as you said earlier, he's probably just adopting them all because they all need homes. <laughs> but the 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 ending for me, like I look at Castle as a showman first and foremost. So the idea of an ending not making sense to me it kind of doesn't matter to me. It's like certain directors you can put into a certain corner and going like, all right, you're kind of allowed to do whatever you want because of who you are. And castle falls in that line for me. It's similar to John waters where like the end of a dirty shame is literally Johnny Knoxville blasting his ass up into space going, let's go sexing. It makes no sense for the rest of the movie that we've just seen that he suddenly has sex powers that allow him to fly, but he does it. (laughs) I kind of, I, but I get you, I get your point because that is a very, like, it's, it's very convenient to suddenly just, I think it's really there just to give Ollie his comeuppance of sorts. And you're right. He should be able to scream at this point, (laughs) but I guess, I guess, you know, when you, when you're being scared to death like that, you go mute instantly. That's that's how that works. That's how science works. <laughs> um, but the other thing, the other thing you mentioned earlier, and I actually hadn't clicked until you said, that, I love the EC comics." Ollie completely pulls an EC face at the end. Yeah, that is, he just all he needs is that creep show lettering, that creep show caption <laughs> around him. Yeah, um, to explain the situation finds himself unable to scream mm. or scream and scream. You know, oh, it's perfect. You do, You're absolutely right. It's that EC comic. It, you know, actually, now that I'm thinking, we, we've kind of talked a little bit about that. The Tingler itself would be a great graphic novel adaptation. Mm. I, I mm. think you could totally work with that. It might be hard with the gimmick. and You'd have to rework the gimmick. But it has everything you want in a good fun pulpy comic it's got a nice thrilling noir adventure to it it's got science fiction attached to it it's got the horror elements it's ripe for an adaptation in a world where we can get dracula bella lugosi dracula reworkings in comic form i want the tingler graphic novel now i i i need that steve you used to do this get on this my friend get on this yeah oh man you give me an idea here this is great so we should we should talk a bit about attempts to update Castle. I mean, I, d- I don't know if you intend yeah, to we, go back to Castle. We, we, are, we are going to. I want to end, though, with Vincent's sure. last words to the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. If any of you are not convinced that you have a tingler of your own, the next time you are frightened in the dark, don't scream. And that's and that's one of the reasons why, Steve, that I'm always going to be aware of my fucking back going forward when I sleep. Because <laughs> the movie didn't convince me, but 
Vincent Price talking in the dark convinced me. <laughs> now, the film's reception, let's get into it. Let's let's jump right into this sucker. Sure. So, the film did cost a million dollars. The initial cost was about 400 grand, but the gimmick itself added to that to create a million dollar price tag. So, uh, there were fainting customers uh, as the plants and whatnot inserted into these screenings. Um, the release of this film, the first engagement of this started in Detroit in 1959 with engagements following. So it kind of road showed out a little bit. Howard Thompson of the New York Times said, William Castle has been serving some of the worst, dullest little horror entries ever to snake into movie houses. And Ron of Variety, just Ron, by the way, didn't want to give his last name to write this review, apparently. He called it highly entertaining and said that Percepto was effective, not so much because of the tingle, but because it menacingly moves closer and closer in waves and coupled with a whirring noise and soundtrack heartbeats and screams, puts the film gore amidst the horror. That's that's a good thing to bring up. The the soundtrack itself going on combined with that effect, it would make you anxious. Oh, the, the heartbeat, of course, the heartbeat of the tingle is actually very clever. Also, again, actually, I hadn't thought of this Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott in Alien uses the heartbeat all the time. Yep, he does. And it and I think yeah, fuck. Ridley, we need to get Ridley Scott to confess his love of <laughs> William Castle in an, in the next Oscars roundtable that he's up for. <laughs> Won't be wouldn't have been last year because the last duel nobody went to see it. Guys, I'm ashamed of you. Um, <laughs> but um, the uh, the the so the reviews are kind of a little bit mixed. Now, Time Out London called the pot ingeniously ludicrous. <laughs> Um, and Slant Magazine said, ludicrousness aside, The Tingler is still one of the more confident castle pictures, a well-paced, at times intentionally funny parody of 1950s domestication, with every couple in the story trying to want off one another for a variety of amusingly convoluted reasons. Think Burn After Reading with a dime store production value and a plastic spinal cord at its center. Now, this is Slant Magazine talking about this years later. And they... They hit they hit it on the mark. The the noir element is really just a parody of these noirs that no uh, that Castle himself had done prior. Um, now, the film the film was enough of a hit to keep Castle going through his many other films. Castle's story, unfortunately, kind of ends a little bit depressingly because, for people who don't know, he bought the rights to Rosemary's Baby, Ira Levin's novel. Paramount, who picked up the project, did not want Castle to direct it, and instead they got Roman Polanski. Uh, but Castle does have a cameo in the film, and he's still a producer on it. And in in the world that we live in, where you know Polanski's a Polanski needs to be looked at with with the most suspicious of glasses ever. Um, I always refer to Rosemary's Baby these days as William Castle's Rosemary's Baby because it seems fair <laughs> to do that. And additionally, you brought this up, Steve. Castle films never went away. In fact, they kept getting revitalized in the 90s. With yeah. Except for this film, which I'd argue should have been a remake by Chuck Russell because he did the blob justice. Yes, I remember it. Yeah. He could have done the Tingler so fucking well. He would have made that Tingler look realistic as all get out. Because 
people we've we've talked about the blob before the original the blob is just a blob it's just a little piece of gooey jelly rolling around <laughs> i think you could have done the tingler great but no castle films remade in the 90s included house on haunted hill uh directed by which oh yeah go ahead go no I, I think it's great by the way i, I really like that i do too. And it, and it's, it, it's had a bit of a slagging but the, the glass pane sliding everywhere it's really effective i thought it was great and i love um jeffrey rush in the movie i love yeah. jeffrey rush in it uh he is giving the best vincent price impression i've ever seen mm. In terms of acting, it's one thing to do like the the voice impression like we were doing. It's another thing to act like Vanson Price. And I think he yes. comes closer than any other. And 13 Ghosts, which was also released in two, uh, yeah. 2001, which I think it doesn't get enough credit. I think it's a fun movie. Um, it's not the best remake I've ever seen, but it's not the worst either. Um, and uh, Castle Films in particular have been homage in certain ways because of the figure himself the movie matinee by joe dante now i'm sorry matinee is one of my favorite films i love that film it's a great film and john goodman plays the castle-esque character in that film and dark castle entertainment was uh founded by zemeckis intended on remaking castle films that that dark castle entertainment is based off of Zemeckis's love for Castle, a filmmaker who yeah. never really went away. Um, Alfred yeah. Hitchcock saw the success Castle was having, and in his desire to be a little bit more back to his old-school filmmaking roots, just a bunch of kids making a movie, made a movie called Psycho, made a lot of money pulling similar gimmicks. His gimmick, though, was a little bit more... I'd argue that Hitchcock's is a little more sophisticated because he he did the more like elegant of like, no one will be seated after the film has started. Don't tell your friends the ending. He kind of pulled back a little bit, but he had a movie to make up for that pulling back because the shock. <laughs> enough. Well, I, I love it in the, uh, in his biography castle says, Oh yeah. You know, um, Alfred Hitchcock learned a lot from me. And then I made homicidal. Oh, uh, you're after psycho with a uh, transvestite plot. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Where did you get that from? <laughs> It's it's a battle between two geniuses. Hitch is like, oh yeah, I can talk that, and then Castle's just like, all right, well then I will completely push it to the nth degree. <laughs> like I, I sometimes wonder how much of this also is Castle recognizing that Hollywood as it exists is kind of fading away, because these gimmicks seem on the surface, and I assumed this is what they were until I dug into Castle's history. I assumed. This was a studio desperate for seats in the theater during television's ascendance, because that seemed like the most obvious answer. But when you read about Castle and his very extraordinary life, it's just it's pure invention on his part. A studio had nothing to do with these gimmicks. It's all coming from this very genius man who we're going to keep talking about on this show because House on Haunted Hill won't not come up on this show. It <laughs> it will it will be a very fun spectacular. Um and additionally, this film itself kind of is is in line with inspiring other monster films or thriller films, but I think the more obvious thing is that these gimmicks have never really gone away. We have 40X now. 40X the experience of 40X is literally what William Castle would have wished he could have invented before he died. 
<laughs> like the idea of like the vibrating seats, Percepto never went away. It's just now attuned to this 40X experience. And 13 Ghosts had um, the ghost vision glasses. And 3D, still a very popular attraction. Um, it, well, not as popular as it was in 2009, but it's still you still have the option to see a movie in 3D. And yeah. gimmicks, anything to get you in the movie theaters, which in the world where we live in, where we've been through a pandemic, I'd argue that latch onto those gimmicks, latch onto anything you can to get people back into that theater because if it worked before, it can work again. And I, I, it's one of those things where I feel bad that neither of us were able to experience Percepto or Emerjo or the Lloyds of London thing because it's another thing that attaches you to the theater-going experience. And it's a disconnect that we sadly don't possess anymore. But if you close your eyes and stick a stick a grocery store vibrator underneath your butt at the right time you can <laughs> you can experience percepto because i don't have access to a de-icer guys but the grocery store is selling pleasure devices you can you can get the experience of percepto and imagine in your mind what it might have been like to sit in a movie theater have the dark go out and go the tingler is loose in my house <laughs> This is not where I thought this podcast no, was no, going. No. I, look, the only way to explain the legacy of Will Castle is to be as audacious as I fucking can. <laughs> Am I going to do that, guys? Probably not. I have a fertile imagination. I can just pretend that the tingler's loose in my house. But if you need a physical <laughs> way to do this, go for it. I ain't going to judge. <laughs> Um, you see, guys, it's been two and a half hours, listeners. It's been worth every moment. Every moment to get to the vibrator. <laughs> Just to get to that point. The vibrator joke. And uh, this is going to be the last episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Steve, thank you for sending off the show in style. <laughs> um, you didn't have anything to do with it. I killed my own show. <laughs> um, but no, um, before we go, Steve, I want to ask, is there anything that you can think of in terms of the modern influence that you've seen that we haven't already discussed or even if you want to reaffirm some stuff that we've discussed, like the way we've seen Castle influence us today. I think we're still missing it, actually. I think we, um, I, I work for a big corporation and I, I enjoy my job. My job's great. Um, I just think we are missing that sense of showmanship. Um, it, it, with stand-up comedy, everybody's cool. With movies, they, you get these beautiful spectacles, you know, and, what we miss. Actually, I, I see the odd band. I see the odd band that comes out and says, come on, we want to be stars. Mm -hmm. And there's not enough of that in the world right now. There's not enough of those. Occasionally you get a small independent movie where the director attends like almost every screening and does a Q&A because they want to get the word out. We need a little bit more of that, a little bit more of that daring, a little more William Cass than all our lives, I think. Yeah. I feel like, and I, with the allusions that I made to somebody like John Waters, I feel like, it's worth noting that he paid homage to his his forebearer of shock in a very loving way. When he released the film Polyester, he did Smell-O-Vision uh, yes. with cards that let you smell a fart. This is uh, as lovely a tribute as it can get. Rugrats Go Wild, which was the third in the Rugrats series uh, in uh, the States, did... Uh, a, a scratch and sniff card element as well. And I agree that that showmanship is missing. 
I want Tarantino came close with the roadshow part of Hateful Eight because he had when you attended the roadshow of Hateful Eight, you got the overture, you got a intermission, and you got uh, a program like an actual program, like if you were going to a big show. But that's that, I agree, that's not enough. You almost want. Quentin Tarantino to do an introduction saying, ladies and gentlemen, the hateful eight, you will all, one of the audience members might be poisoned and you'll have to guess which one's the murder inside your theater (laughs) or something. Not something as like, obviously legally tangly as that, but like something to kind of get the, like the, the, the word out on, you've got to go experience this 3d isn't enough, but I also wonder how much of it is personality driven. Do we have anybody like a Castle or a Hitchcock anymore to do that? You know, I, 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 actually, Tarantino is probably the closest we've had for a long time because he was willing to give those outrageous interviews. Um, I mean, even recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is great if you view it as six half-hour episodes rather than a three-hour movie. It, it works brilliantly that way. Um, but he's probably the most recent person to really come out and say, this is what I think about film, uh, and this is why you should come and see my film. I can't, I can't actually think of a, a current equipment, really. It, it's, I think it's, I think it's kind of lost because Tarantino is one of the only filmmakers still working out there that understands how fun it is to go to a movie theater. I mean, shit, he's got the new, he owns the new, two movie theaters, one of which shows Grindhouse films on a constant basis, along with his own movies. He's unafraid to stick his own movies in his theater. And, you know, I think like the presentation style that I think that there's a problem sometimes when films become art and art only or spectacle and spectacle only. Nobody has an in-between to just present itself. The closest that I can equate is a movie that I'm going to see right after this show. Everything Everywhere All at Once is coming has just come out by the Daniels uh, who did Swiss Army Man. And apparently oh, yeah. at the Alamo where I'm going to go see it, there is a a big 30-minute interview with Michelle Yeoh talking about her experience making the movie and selling the movie. And Alamo Drafthouse recommends they make a whole advertisement about like five reasons why you should see this movie that we recommend personally. It's another way for them to get you into the theater-going experience. And the Drafthouse is kind of taken a step into castle direction because they have interactive parties. Um, uh, they have movie parties where like we did kiss, kiss, bang, bang, where you could shoot off, um, uh, those little streamer fireworks, those poppers, uh, in the theater when the gun went off and I can't stand that stuff. So I left the theater when those moments came up. (laughs) It's a, it's a sensitivity thing for me, but the, but, but the other elements of it, we had like little props that we could play with. It's, it's a great experience that a theater is providing. And that comes out of that showmanship that Castle himself possessed. I think it still exists, but we do need somebody as bold as William Castle to come and introduce a 40X film and maybe add another dimension to it that 40X doesn't normally have. Even if it's as simple as throwing a skeleton out into the audience to shock him at the very end of a movie. Like it's, it's, it's a brilliance that that man possessed that I don't, maybe it's once in a lifetime, but I hope that somebody comes along to do that. Maybe, may, maybe 
maybe in everything, everywhere, all at once, you yourself will be thrown into a multiverse. Who knows? <laughs> um, and on that note, Steve, thank you so much for coming onto the show, sitting down with us for a good two and a half hours to talk about the Tingler. I want to have you back, buddy. This is you, You've been a treat and a delight, my friend. And thank you. It's no wonder that people on Talking Pictures TV want your commentary all the time. And it's no wonder that, by the way, fan gush moment. I love you on Film Guff talking about Life Force because it was like finally <laughs> three of my <laughs> favorite you. things coming together. Film Guff, this guy, and fucking Life Force, which is a great fucking movie. <laughs> Don't anybody tell me it's not. Um, for, for people out there, who are, where can they find you? How can they follow you? Where, where uh, can... Seriously, look at Shameful Steve. Shameful Steve on Twitter. It's so christened by Adam Roach because my jokes apparently are shameful. Oh, so shameful Steve. I'm gonna have on a, I'm gonna have a talk with Adam. I'm gonna have a talk with him. He'll be like, <laughs> you you take that back now, honorable Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Thank you so much, buddy. Thanks, mate. And this is gonna wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the show. On upcoming episodes, more Tour de Tati is coming. We're going to be talking about Mon Uncle um, over at the YBR Presents feed. We're going to do Fantasia with Matthew O'Connor. The uh, gentleman who scored our intro is going to be coming on to talk about the mother of all music uh, music uh, experiences at the theater. Um, and additionally, we're going to be breaking a rule on the Ballyhoo review, we're going to go back to a familiar figure, but I can't tell you what we're going to do or how we're going to do it. I can tell you that Andrew Saunders from pop culture brews is going to be a part of this. And he's the reason this is happening, but let's just say a very familiar silhouette that we talked about today. will be making his Ballyhoo debut unofficially, officially, whatever the hell we're going to, I'm just going to explain it. Now we're going to talk Hitchcock. He's coming back. We couldn't keep him away from just that one series I did. We're going to bring him into this show, so he's now open game to everybody. Um, but until all of that, and until next time, folks, remember, the next time you don't believe a podcast exists, just listen to one in the middle of the night and don't scream. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Ballyhoo.